millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Happy Tuesday. Another episode of A Little More Good coming at you this fine day. I'm here with my pal, Zach, as always. How you doing, Zach? Good. How you doing, Dean? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing really well. It's, uh, it's, it's Monday. We're doing a little, little intro for the, for the episode today on a Monday. And it's Diwali, so that's pretty exciting. Oh, yeah. Festival of Lights. Yes. Right? The yeah. story of the triumph of good over evil and light returning to communities and the celebrations of, of yeah. What a beautiful celebration, too. Yeah, happy Diwali to all our friends that celebrate. Yeah. Uh, for those that don't, you know, good opportunity to, to learn about it. Go yeah. go search Diwali. It's a, a beautiful festival. Totally. Celebrated by the, the Sikh and the Hindu communities. And I learned this today uh, also by a smaller, a smaller uh, religious group in, in India, but the Jains. Oh, yes. Practice Jainism. Yes. And also lots of Buddhists. There we go. Embrace and celebrate Diwali. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. But it's a great it's a great festival, so it's a great celebration. One of the most important in the Hindu, uh, the most important yes. in, in the Hindu calendar. So yeah, happy Diwali to all of our friends. My first experience with Diwali was uh, when Ryan and I were backpacking in uh, Nepal, and uh, we were still in the Himalayas and just like lights everywhere, like it was it was beautiful, Col- yeah. colors everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, such an amazing time, especially when you're in in the mountains and there's no electricity. Just all these lights, you see it. All the all these lights coming out. I've always said I was very fortunate to grow up in um, in East Richmond, where there's a lot of like Indo-Canadian families, um, Richmond in general, or the or the Lower Mainland. But just lots of my friends growing up. My neighbors directly across the street, right? Um, shout out to Gurpreet and his fam. But they're you know you just grow up with the people around you, and so you learn about all these different cultures. And I've always said like the Indian culture like knows how to do like celebrations yes. from weddings, which can last, you know, days and even weeks, depending on, you know, the, the level of celebration and just like the different rituals and practices. And I just feel like there's such a, it's such a beautiful culture of celebrating. Yes. I love it. And so, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing and seeing, you know, the firecrackers we get to go and we're going into Vancouver tonight. And so I'm sure it'll be, It'll be full. Time to party. Full Diwali Time celebrations in swing. Yeah. Speaking of that region of the world, have you been following uh, Friend of the Pod, Mandy Gill's adventures yes. in Nepal and the Himalayas? Amazing. I'm, I'm just like I'm looking like, at it with a full heart, <laughs> full full envy, full excitement. Dude. Just like a lot of emotions going on there. I but know. it looks like just the trip of a lifetime. I'm wearing out the like button on Instagram. Oh my like, God. I'm like, yeah. I already commented on this. Can I comment again? Yeah. Like, no. Amazing. Uh, we even talked about her when, when or talked with her when she was on the pod about having her back on to kind of do the, you know, post 
post expedition pod. So that would be really cool. But yeah, yes. what an adventure. Also amazing conversation with her. If you go back in the catalog, Mandy Gill. Yes. Uh, yeah. Wonderful human being for sure. Check her out. Follow her on the gram and the Strava so that you can see her, her current adventures in the Himalayas. Yeah. And uh, here in the flatlands of Richmond, we had some great conversations with the good doctor, Matthew Negra. Another another wonderful uh, human being, friend of the pod, his, his second appearance. Yes. Yeah, which is really fun, the return of Dr. Negra, but just a brilliant, brilliant individual. Um, first episode, we kind of did the plant-based 101, like what, why should we do this? And he is just so knowledgeable um, and really passionate about sharing a message. But uh, as we said, and as you will hear, like makes it really accessible mm-hmm. to anyone. He also has a very high integrity for research and yes. credibility and, and being a trusted resource and making sure that whatever he shares is, is science-backed. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he has the energy and the gusto to go and debate with a lot of people online that are sharing um, pseudoscience or misinformation. Um, and he's, he's on a mission to be a source that people can count on. I, I think there's a lot, especially on Instagram, there's a lot of product where um, things are being sold where the science doesn't always match the message. Yes, yes. So we get into misinformation. How do we trust resources? Um, how these trends start and spread that are based on misinformation. We get into some of the common claims that we're seeing um, on on the good old interweb and mm-hmm. Instagram and, and in the the health and wellness sector. Um, yeah, we break, we do a lot of myth busting today. Yeah, he is. Uh, and he is, uh, he is very good at doing that. His, uh, his practice as a naturopathic doctor, his passion as a plant-based person and just, uh, his, his stance, like I said, is this backed by science? Can we verify this? Is it peer reviewed? Is this like credible versus is it a fad? Is it popular? Is it making its rounds on social media and sounds really convincing? And maybe a few people can say, Oh yeah, this definitely worked for me. It's not enough for him. And what I love is that he will take these popular things that are going around and either debunk them or point out where maybe there is some validity to them. But yeah, he's a, he's a good one to follow for sure. It's great. And um, I love, he he's so generous with his time, uh, both with us and with his uh, online community where he's always doing AMAs and sharing tons of great information. He's, he's recently lost, uh, uh, launched a membership program uh, if you want to dive deeper and, and just have uh, someone to his degree available to answer your questions. So um, if you head to his website, um, you got his website up there, Dina? Yeah, drmatthewnagra.com. Oof, got a ring to it. Yeah, you can find it there. And then, of course, his Instagram as well, Dr. Matthew Negra. Or from his website, you'll go to his Instagram where you can find all of those resources, how to get a hold of him, how to... Um, be part of that kind of sort of group, not really like a Patreon group, but like a group where you can have deeper levels of access and, you know, responses from, from the good doctor himself. The good doctor. Yeah. Okay. Before we roll, I was feeling like, uh, my sweet tooth was calling, uh, before we hit the record button here. So I brought a little treat from the juice truck. Mm-hmm. What did we, uh, I saw that it serves too, and there's two of us. So I thought, Hey, that's perfect. That's perfect. I thought that it said, uh, I saw, saw that it said serves too. And I was like, where's yours? <laughs> <laughs> no, so good. It's, uh, 
It's called a warm chocolate and tahini cake from Happy Macadamia are the good people who have brought us this delicious treat. A rich, squidgy chocolate dessert laced with nutty tahini and golden gooey drops of sweet halva. Incredible. As someone who is like a nut-free vegan, this cake was like hitting all of those nutty needs with the tahini and the halva. Oh man, it's so tasty, so moist, so, so delicious. You can just pop it in the oven. You can even microwave it if that's your jam for a quick little, quick little hit, but uh, very, very delicious little, little um, nutritional treat. Like it's yeah. got good stuff in it. Made in Vancouver yeah. and it's uh, gluten-free. And I got to be honest here, I don't always love uh, gluten-free products because yeah. sometimes I find there's like a bit of chalkiness or like the texture's just not quite there. Yeah. But this is, uh, this hits the spot. Um, this isn't even a sponsored post. This is just good, good. We just liked it. Delicious <laughs> yeah. food. So happy macadamia. Check them out. They're Vancouver based. Yeah. We sell it at the juice truck. You can get your, you can get your fix there. I'm definitely, I will definitely get it again. My brother-in-law who is, uh, who is definitely a person who needs the GF. I'm sure he would love that. There you That's go. a great little dessert. There you go. Yeah, happy well, macadamia. Check them out. Definitely. All right. Dr. Matthew Negra, let's let it roll. All right, everyone. Good to be back with you all. And good to be back with you, Dr. Matthew Negra, making your second appearance on the pod. So good to have you with us. We're obviously big fans of your work and um, follow all of the information you share on Instagram. And we've been fortunate to connect with you at the different um, Planted Expos. You've been a keynote speaker, have your own booth there. And just uh, from the first conversation till now, it just feels like we've had a chance to connect and rub shoulders and share stories. And so thank you. Thank you for joining us and good to have you back with us, man. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks uh, for having me back. It's always uh, good. And it's awesome to see all the people you've been getting on too. like yeah. a lot of, a lot of big names in this space. So I'm in some good company, I think. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Some of them thanks to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very grateful. Very grateful for uh, yeah all of the connections. It's one of the beautiful things of of having this community of people who are curious and wanting to to lean forward into like spaces of of health and wellness and constantly doing the doing the hard work of like researching, you know, how can we be our optimal selves, best for our health, best for the planet, and really people like you uh, spend so much time doing the heavy lifting, looking at the research and really making it accessible to people through your Instagram platform, I think is like a huge, huge tool that you use to reach out and educate people and really just like, yeah, synthesize scientific data, raw data and say, hey, here's kind of like the Coles notes, like what, too long, TLDR, Dr. Matthew Nagger, that's like something that I've really appreciated about you. So yeah, appreciate all that, man. That, that's the goal anyway, is to try to hopefully make some of that stuff understandable yeah. just to, you know, someone who maybe isn't or doesn't have that formal education in the a science background. So, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that because I, I do try to listen to some of the science forward podcasts sometimes. And I know these people are so credible and intelligent, but I, I can't comprehend the conversations or I get lost in the terminology. So I appreciate how you make it accessible for, for layman's like myself. And I, I think that's something we'll get into more but I also think a lot of the misinformation comes from people who abuse that, mm. right? You use this complex language and you talk about some, you know, like nitty gritty details of the physiology that's going on in the body and you can sell a lot of ideas, right? even if it doesn't mean anything or, or 
potentially even harmful. Like you can make it sound like it's you know something you need to be doing. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a big reason, again, why I do what I do to, to hopefully uh, dispel some of that. Yeah. Well, maybe we can start there with, with resources and, and, and who to trust. I feel like on the internet, on books, um, just the health and wellness industry as a whole is very confusing. Um, there'll be videos of people sharing health information that has millions of views and it becomes a movement. Um, but there's maybe lack of credibility or lack of resource. Um, you know, there's books that are published by people that some people will consider a quack and other people will consider this person a quack and, you know, other people consider them the experts in the industry, you know? So, uh, the same person can be both a quack and an expert and it's confusing on, on who to trust. So can we talk a little bit about how do we trust resources and misinformation, how to spot or identify fact from fiction? Yeah. So that's a tough one. Yes. Um, it, it's a tough one because, like I said, people can just sound convincing. And so, yes. I mean, there's a few things you can look for. For one, do they provide references? That should be like an obvious one, right? Mm-hmm. They should be providing something. And if they don't, if you ask, which I often do, do they respond with some to support their view? Or do they you know, give you the response of, oh, Google it yourself? Or what I get sometimes, there's too many. There's so many that I can't even share one, right. <laughs> you know, kind of right. thing. Yeah. Um, so... If, if they have some references there, that's great, but you can find references to support anything. Like I can find you some references suggesting that smoking doesn't increase risk of lung cancer, but we know that's not true because we look at the totality of the evidence, right? You look at everything. Right. Um, now, other things to look out for is, for one, does it oppose what the scientific consensus ultimately tells us? So, you know, with smoking again, it's, it's consensus that it, it causes lung cancer that's not good for you. Um, is someone opposing that? Obviously not smoking, but with nutrition. Like we know that there are guidelines around limiting saturated fat intake, increasing fiber intake, eating an abundance of whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole, whole grains, and so on. Um, if if someone is vehemently opposing that, then it doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong, but you should take a step back and really want to investigate. Like what are they saying? What is it based on? Is it good evidence? Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, maybe have the ability to do that perhaps reach out to somebody who does if there's other people on social media like myself or, or whoever who might be able to chime in when we have the time yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah so, so uh, that's that's another thing and you know do they make really absolute claims like do they say this absolutely causes that or um, uh, are they using more I guess, conservative language like, oh, this may be associated with that or tends to increase risk of, right. of that. Um, those sorts of words are, are what typically scientists will use, you know, mm-hmm. people who are actually publishing the research. It's very rare that you'll find publications where they say this causes that, you know, outright, except with, you know, I can think of lung uh, uh, smoking and lung cancer, but I can also think of LDL cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. Um, those are areas where I feel confident enough to say like, yeah, this is absolutely true. Right. Um, but those, those are just a few things that I can maybe, or a few pieces of advice I can give, but it's really hard mm-hmm. to, to know who to trust in this day and age when there's just so much information coming at you all the time and, and you can't always investigate everything. Yeah. I think that's really sound advice though. Cause so often we see, 
um, claims being made and it maybe looks like it's from a scientific journal or you know the article someone shared on Facebook or whatever mm. it looks convincing but the words are very much like those kind of we have to be careful right correlation or scientists find link or potential yeah. right and it's good for us to not misread those as like oh this equals this right and exactly. to, to kind of pay attention to it and to know that like there are a million and one quote unquote experts out there mm -hmm. and like who is who is trying to like convince you and what are they trying to convince you of because if you look at the whole body of work and there's this one study that someone's done that kind of speaks counter to it i mean isn't it just like us to be like oh wait this one person found something that contradicts all the data i'm going to believe them yeah because it suits me yeah, that's it. There is definitely a confirmation bias there where yeah. you just you like what they're saying. So you, you buy into it. And actually, another thing I just thought of to add is if someone is selling one thing as kind of a cure all, like this is what you need to do to, to cure everything and fix all your problems. I mean, that should be a red flag as well, because you know, it's not that simple. It never right. is. Yeah, totally. If only. If yeah, only. yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> I think I'm usually a little more skeptical when their claims are attached to their their products that they're selling mm -hmm. um not to throw anyone under the bus but i'll throw someone under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> like dave aspie in bulletproof mm -hmm. you know like um you know he's a local guy maybe he'll he'll come after us for saying um, this but uh i'd chat with him if he wanted to come on yeah <laughs> no problem yeah i mean with dave aspie specifically all his health claims are attached to the products that he's selling mm -hmm. for a lot of money so um they're very convenient the health claims that he makes just for example um, so I have a bit more skepticism when it's like, you know, this will do this, this for this. And here's the answer here are my products that will do all of these things. Yeah. Oh, there was one, um, I think, uh, Simon Hill and, and Drew, they talked about it on, on their podcast or on, on Simon's podcast. Um, Drew brought it up. There was like a, or there was a video of Dave saying that kale is you know dangerous in some way or harmful in some way. And and then pulled up a product that Dave sells that was called like the Kale Buster. I absolutely lost it. I died laughing. It's just so funny at that point. Like you can't, why even argue with something like that? It's just, you just yeah. gotta laugh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was one that really sticks out. So, so if you're getting resources uh, and you're getting studies, uh, my second question on that, not all studies have pure intention. Like there are a lot of studies that are funded by specific interest groups. So, is it easy to be able to uh, distinguish the intention of the of the research and who's funded it? Like if it's a university funded research or if it's like privately funded by like a corporation or a lobby group? So I, I would actually probably surprise some of the listeners. I don't care that much hmm. what, what the funding source is. Um, now, if something is funded by industry, we know that that tends to produce favorable results. And there was a, a review published by actually Neil Bernard and, and some of those guys uh, over at PCRM where they looked at the research on eggs or, or dietary cholesterol and heart disease. And uh, or at least I think that's what they were looking at. And they found that, yeah, more often than not, uh, the results favored uh, the eggs or, or cholesterol when um, uh, when it was funded by industry. But the thing was, a lot of the times, it was actually the author's conclusions, like mm -hmm. their opinion of the results that didn't necessarily reflect the results that accurately. The results tended to be actually accurate or, or what you would expect, um, but it can be spun. Right. So what I do is I want to look at the methods. How did they design this? Are there any clear issues or are they designing it in a way that is going to produce favorable outcomes? Uh, and then you look at the results for what they are 
And you know, I can form my own conclusion on that. I don't need to listen to what their conclusion would be. Yeah. Now that's not easy for everyone. Um, but once you kind of get enough experience with it, you can do that. And, and that's ultimately what I'm looking for. So, um, you know, I, if, if a, a study finds that, that eggs don't raise cholesterol levels, which therefore maybe wouldn't raise heart disease risk, I want to look at, well, you know, how much cholesterol were the participants eating? Mm -hmm. Maybe the study went out of their way to enroll people who already eat a lot of cholesterol. Right. And in that case, you're not going to further raise your cholesterol by adding more dietary cholesterol in. Yeah. Right. That's, that's one of the big things with cholesterol is if you take a vegan who eats none and you add cholesterol to their diet, their serum cholesterol levels, the cholesterol in their blood can actually shoot up. But if you take an average American who's eating a lot of cholesterol already and you add more on top of that, you're not going to see that. Like yeah. that's one thing that's done. Another thing that can be done is, especially in a lot of Asian populations when it comes to maybe eggs, but definitely um, like red meat and that, you're comparing people who are eating it once a month to once a week or something. Um, you know, you're not going to really see anything. Yeah. Um, whereas if you look at another population where you have people consuming it regularly and you compare those who are having, say, a a serving of eggs a week versus those who are having it every single day. Yeah. Then you can see an association. So those are the types of details that you need to really get into. It's not something I can teach on a, on a podcast like this, but, yeah. but those are the sorts of things that we're looking for and, and why you can, um, you know, how maybe industry could have an influence. It's not that they're fabricating the results. That's pretty rare. I think, Yeah, but it's that they can design things in a certain way or, um, use language that maybe downplays the results or, or upplays them in, in certain ways. Depending that, on that. Yeah, sort of favors their position. Yeah. Here, here, here's a funny example that I, I saw. Um, it was an old study that uh, Coca-Cola funded on on soda being, their soda being fine or healthy to drink. And what was cherry-picked or, or taken from the study was that someone that was dehydrated, once they drank a Coca-Cola, they were no longer dehydrated but it negated like the other implications of, of the sugar or the other ingredients. It was just like, yes, like there was a, there was an improvement in this person's health because they went from dehydrated to, to hydrated. So it's like, <laughs> it that, was, me, that yeah. was the conclusion, you know? Yeah. 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 Or even like uh, thinking back, you know, to like our, our previous iterations of the national food guide here in Canada, mm -hmm. right? And how favorable it was towards meat and dairy and how that has changed over time. And now like we're starting to see there was like federal, um, like the, the, there was involvement by like dairy to have a say in like, Hey, yeah, let's make dairy products. Like one of the most important aspects of your day. Like it was a quarter of our plate yeah. in like 1970 something. Right. And there was interest from the dairy industry to like have that in there and now as the science is like moving forward i think it's like you can't make those claims as clearly now it's not even that uh the big thing with the canadian food guide the last iteration which i, I think came out in 2019 2019 yeah. yeah um they they actually did a pretty good job at removing industry interest so they actually didn't allow them to have a say and they tried to speak just to the science of course i'm sure there was still a little bit of industry interplay somewhere down the chain right yeah, for sure but um but i think they did a really good job mm -hmm. i mean everyone cites the canadian food guide now whether they're from america australia the uk i've seen yeah. a lot of you know scientists around really point to us and say like that's how you do it yeah yeah because maybe it is like progressive in the sense of it shifted quite a bit 
when those interests were eliminated. Mm-hmm. You, that's when you've seen the biggest shift, even from the, the earlier one in the 90s or early 2000s when it was, like the difference is noticeable to this current one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's important, I think, to know who's behind it, what are the, even coming back to the idea of the um, science, like what is the design of the experiment and what is the perceived outcome that they're wanting? And then, yeah, understanding those conclusions can be like massaged to be more favorable or less favorable. <laughs> yeah. But it's good information. I mean, there is so much, I think that it's worthy of the time and attention for us because we see so much information so quickly all the time to at least have some tools mm-hmm. to be able to spend five, 10 minutes and like dig into something. Because if you're going to change the way you eat based on an Instagram post, yeah. Like you got to do a little bit more research than that because it could have real like health impacts for you, right? Mm -hmm. Keto and, you know, the carnivore diet and all of these things that have really been fueled by social media have potentially put people in dangerous situations with their health, right? I wouldn't even say potentially. It has. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that that awareness is key and being able to like action it is, I mean, so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, if we jump into, since we've got the Mythbuster in the hot seat here, <laughs> yeah. should we just jump into some, I think like Dean mentioned, a lot of health movements, wellness movements start on, on social media with, without having the proper merit. Uh, maybe we can discuss, debunk, or maybe validate some things that go on on the internet. Uh, poke some holes in, in carnivore, keto, maybe there's some even some vegan myths like we all have our our bubbles and our bias like um mm-hmm. maybe we can get into some of those and and get to the the truth of the matter sure thing okay yeah. should we start with a big one let's do it let's tackle it okay i think like the one that i see the most uh, on instagram obviously i i get a lot of my vegan influence but uh when i'm scrolling the explore page it's uh it's a lot of carnivore diet uh it seems to be a popular one where where people I guess for 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 the sake of clarity, um, can you can you define what the carnivore diet is to start with, and then we can get into some of the um, facts from fiction. I mean, I, I don't think the carnivores can define what it is because right. you have all sorts of like like carnivore MD Paul Saladino eats fruit and rice, and recently made a, a video about him eating a bunch of vegetables that are technically fruit, so it's okay apparently, like uh, certain melons and, or um, like cucumbers and things like that. Yeah. Um, squash was another one that was kind of funny but generally speaking it's a diet that is mostly if not exclusively meat um, and other animal products really as far as the carnivore goes it should probably be just meat um, but or meat and organs and that but uh, but that's kind of the general definition because mm-hmm. I see I've seen people like the gentleman you mentioned in like the liver king or something oh yeah like liver that. king yeah yeah cool. yeah um, okay so I've seen claims on the carnivore diet that uh, the benefits are everything from lowered blood sugar, decreased intestinal discomfort of of bloating and gas, improved gut health, uh, decreased inflammation, stronger mental acuity, weight loss, reduced symptoms of chronic disease, increased testosterone and sex drive. Uh, This one was interesting for me, the elimination of plant toxins and plant anti-nutrients um so maybe we can uh dive into those and then some of the the kind of term of the the storytelling that i've heard around uh carnivore diet uh but this is how our ancestors eat uh but meat is nutrient dense 
the protein. You missed a good one, though, I've heard. What's that? If you eat exclusively meat, you have no body odor. Mm. Oh, really? Oh, you should check out the... There's an Instagram page that's absolutely hilarious. It's called Carnivore Cringe. <laughs> and this person has, like, infiltrated all of the carnivore social media groups, like yeah. on Facebook and stuff. And they just screenshot what people say and post. And there's, like, everyone's talking about how they stink. Yeah, like that. and then they ask for advice, like, what am I doing wrong? And people are like, it's not enough meat. And, you know, they, it's, like, that's, it's, it's like one of my favorite pages out there. <laughs> but, like, some of the stories are just really sad. Yeah. Like, they actually make you sad because, you know, people who are having real health issues, not just people not wanting to be around them because they have an odor, but, yeah. like, people who are you know, they're at risk or maybe they just had a heart attack or they're at risk and their doctor wants to put them on certain medications and they're saying, what should I do? And then all of these comments of people saying, oh no, don't listen to them. They, they're looking at outdated science and this and that. And it's like, man, that's going to kill people. Well, there's like, a bit of an anti-science yeah. movement in general Yeah, 100%. To, to question the integrity or, or the um, merit of, of science itself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. But yeah, out of that list, I mean, what do you want to tackle? There's, yeah. there's a lot there. Okay, I guess we can break it down one by one. Like in the basis of what a carnivore diet is, is it so some people start this way and they're like have these, they feel better, maybe they lose some weight. Is is it just because in some sense this is basically an elimination diet? Yeah, especially for gut health. So, you know, it, there's all of these fancy tests out there, food sensitivity tests, things like that they're, they're largely garbage. Like they, they're haven't been validated. You, you don't, they don't actually diagnose things like food, food sensitivities. The gold standard is an elimination diet. And then you challenge the foods back in and you, you know, see if you react to anything under guidance, of course, for anyone who's listening to this. Um, and by eliminating almost every food group, if anything was bothering your gut, you've probably just got rid of it. And then you're going to feel better that way. The other thing is if you're on a carnivore diet, uh, on any, imagine if you're just on a rice diet, you're probably not going to overeat. Um, you know, in fact, you're probably going to be in a deficit and you'll end up losing weight. And for, you know, for certain things like say type two diabetes, that's critical to improving say blood sugar levels. Um, and in the short term, you can have that say drastic weight loss, feel better. Um, but that doesn't mean that you aren't still doing a lot of damage in other ways, whether mm-hmm. it's colorectal cancer risk, cardiovascular disease risk, and so on. Um, so in the short term, I can see that. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with the carnivore diet or the way that people promote the carnivore diet is they always promote it as like results right now. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, you, you know, here's this, these anecdotes of people who, um, you know, they, they lost weight, their skin cleared up, all these things happen, their gut feels better, they're having, uh, you know, more regular digestion at least sometimes if you go to that carnivore cringe page you'll read some other stuff but um and and you don't hear about actually that's another thing you don't hear about those issues you don't Mm -hmm. hear about the people posting in that group or or uh you know where those screenshots are coming from um but you know it it's at the risk of long-term health and it's not as sexy as selling a a plant-based diet whether it's exclusive or or predominantly plant-based where you're talking about, you know, 30, 40 years from now being able to, you know, be mobile, not beyond if, as long as it's not a genetic issue like cholesterol lowering medications and, um, or having a heart attack and that, you know, people want results yesterday. And mm-hmm. then they see people like the liver King or, or whatever, who are all, you know, jacked up and, and stuff. And, yeah. and then it, it just, it, they want that. So mm-hmm. that's the big issue. Yeah. 
It's the it's the desire for the quick fix, exactly. and the hack. And the, I think the reality is like we we are conditioned uh, somehow along the way it happened, like the immediatization of our society where I want it, I want it now, or as you said, like yesterday mm-hmm. already, that we will trade off those long term effects for some sort of immediate gain. And yeah, like I think that the reason why these diets and and trends are popular is because they do work mm-hmm. in the short term. Yeah, but like. You know, uh, keto and carnivore diet, like these are relatively new in the whole scheme of things. And it'll just be really probably unfortunate and interesting to see like how it holds up in terms of longevity. I think five to 10 years from now, we're going to see problems. We're going to see people having heart attacks and, and stuff. Because the, the thing with that is it's it's a long game. It's not something you'll notice right away. Like you can you can, you start smoking today. You're not going to get lung cancer tomorrow. Right. You might never, but a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, and so... That's, yeah, that's a big one. But I also want to emphasize that all of these claims that you hear from people adopting carnivore diet, you also hear from people adopting a plant-based diet. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you can really, with any diet camp, you improve your nutrition, and or I wouldn't even say a carnivore diet's necessarily improving nutrition for <laughs> yeah. a lot of people. But um, if you make these dietary changes, you get rid of the ultra-processed foods, you can feel better, um, and you can get those short-term gains. But like I, I speak with Simon Hill about this too. You know, we don't, feel right trying to promote something using anecdotes and these like short-term quick fixes where there maybe isn't good science behind it when we you know have all these other reasons you know the, the lower risk of diabetes heart disease and so on um, that's what we push more because that's where the science is really really solid mm-hmm. um and uh, i guess it comes down to maybe morals and wanting to you know wanting to have that that like i said quick fix and promote whatever supplements you're selling and that sort of thing. But, but I couldn't in good conscience use that, even though I could use the exact same playbook as them with the, you know, exact same type of data, if you can even call it that, um, in the form of just anecdotes, testimonials. Right. Yeah. And that's what works sadly, because people don't have a lot of time. Yeah. So they see something, they see a picture of someone that like looks fit or healthy or whatever, happy. And this is how I did it. Yeah, like I remember, you know, bumping into people from, you know, hadn't seen them for a few years and they're like, hey, you look like you look so fit. Like, what's going on? Like, what have, what have you done? And I was like, oh, I like cut out a lot of garbage food that I was eating and like exercise regular, like running all the time. They're yeah. like, oh, like, it's a lot of like, work. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like, I don't want to do that. It's like not sexy. It's not the quick fix, easy sell. It's like, yeah, eat even the Michael Pollan kind of things like eat plants or eat food, mostly plants and like not as much. Like people don't want to do that because it's like sensible, sensible and, yeah. and and reasonable. It's not like do this and in three weeks you'll have the beach body or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So um, before we move on from the carnivore side of things, so if if someone's listening to this and they've been enticed into eating a, a, a predominantly meat forward diet, um, because like Dean mentioned, they see someone on Instagram that they connect to at a it, it appeals to their lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm. What are some of the long-term implications that that they might be um, have blind spots for? Yeah. So the the research on on saturated fat, which is you're probably going to be eating a lot of on a on a carnivore diet, um, and cardiovascular disease is incredibly consistent. It's it's about as solid as it gets, and so that in and of itself is cause for concern over you know a 10 year plus period um at the same time 
the data on red meat consumption when you have a decent contrast intake. So if you compare people who rarely or, or never eat it to people who have you know, a serving a day, you see very consistently high risk of cardiovascular disease, colorectal cancer, and so on. You know, these are the long-term implications down the road. Now, what a carnivore would push back on me uh, with is they'll say, oh, but they weren't eating strictly carnivore. So like with that sort of logic, what they're talking about is, and I, I wish people could see this, but you're essentially drawing a graph where risk just continues to increase up until a point, And then all of a sudden just plummets and drops off the map. Like there is not a single association in all of nutrition or medicine for that matter, like really anything yeah. where that is the case. Like it's a fairy tale that they're telling people. Um, so we know like we have a lot of we can have a lot of confidence in the idea that this is going to lead to those long-term health complications um and the funny thing is what what they often use to to sell the idea is as well oh that's what our ancestors ate well <laughs> sure an ancestors ate meat I, I wouldn't disagree for a, at least for the most part diet varied a lot depending on where you were located um but meat was typically a, a part of it and in certain places it might have been even the dominant fact or dominant um food group well our ancestors didn't live very long either i mean they they didn't tend to live to the point where they would run into these sort of chronic health issues right they were eating for survival right. they were eating to get to a point where they're old enough to reproduce you know maybe dying in their 20s or 30s yeah um they'd be lucky to make it to 40 a lot of the time and even if you look at modern day hunter gatherer populations they don't like certain ones actually eat kind of more plant-based diets but even those who eat more animal products they aren't on an exclusively animal-based diet and same sort of issue applies a lot of them don't have great longevity or we don't have good research on the um you know rates of disease in those population or accurate records uh, you know, a lot of the time our data comes from like autopsy studies where after the fact, after they've died, you look and like, oh, wow, they had extensive heart disease. Like the Maasai are one that always come up and people want to say, oh, they eat a ton of, you know, saturated fat and this and, and they're super healthy. They don't have heart disease. It's basically non-existent. Well, there's literally a publication called Atherosclerosis in the Maasai. That's literally the title. <laughs> and, and it talks about how they had extensive atherosclerosis, but they also exercised so much right. that they were able to combat a bit of that, uh, a bit of the, the negative kind of uh, effects of that. Um, and really, who cares what our ancestors did? <laughs> we're here talking on whatever these microphones even, I don't even <laughs> exactly. know what these are. Yeah. It's fancy setup uh, with the MacBook out and, um, you know, people who are listening to this are on their phone or computer. It's like, why do we have to do things the way our ancestors did it? How does that at all make it healthier, yes. preferable? It doesn't. Um, you know, our, our ancestors, we actually recently got in a, a little debate with someone about, um, you know, smoking. I was like, well, why is, you know, why do you agree that smoking is harmful? We've done it for a long time. And, and they actually thought it was a really new thing, but we have evidence of like charred tobacco plants 12,000 years ago. Oh yeah. Plus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe that's not millions of years ago, but still like it's something that's been going on for a really long time. It doesn't mean it's healthy for you. Right. And it's natural. Yeah. So to speak, you know, yeah. um, there's a lot of, of those sorts of things. And there's the anti-nutrient argument. I don't know if that's something we're going to get into at some point. Yeah, that's, I don't, that's a new term to me. I, <laughs> I'd never heard eliminating plant toxins and, and, and anti-nutrients. Can you, yeah. can you uh, allude to that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. yeah. pull back so, the curtain. Yeah, so um, honestly, they're used interchangeably, I find, a lot of the time in the carnivore camp. You know, they'll 
call them plant toxins, anti-nutrients, typically talking about the same kind, kinds of compounds. The main ones are oxalates, phytates, and uh, lectins. Um, now, oxalates, they can bind to calcium, prevent some absorption there. So maybe if you're eating calcium-rich foods like spinach, you might not absorb as much uh, calcium from those foods. Um, but the, the thing is, it doesn't eliminate absorption, and not all plant foods are rich in oxalates anyway. Now, if you, if you were to go crazy with oxalates, like you're having like spinach juices and things like that and, and, and just having a ton of it, it can actually potentially uh, promote kidney stone formation, uh, especially in people um, who are prone to kidney stones. But that's at typically really high intakes. And we actually have research on um, oxalate intake from the nurse's health study and uh, kidney stone risk. And you actually find that it's only in people with low calcium intakes. And that's because, like I said, oxalates bind to calcium. It kind of works the other way too. Calcium will, will bind the oxalates so it doesn't lead to those those harmful effects. Right. And, and of course, you can get calcium from other sources. I prefer fortified plant milks as a really rich source. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the quick on, on uh, oxalates. Phytates are another one that can uh, lower absorption of certain nutrients like zinc, uh, for example, maybe iron to a degree. But we actually have research on... Um, like there's research on breads that are, uh, you know, have added phytates or, or phytates removed from them. And you see that the impact on absorption is is tiny. It's really tiny. I would not expect it to have any sort of real harmful effect. And actually research on uh, women, I believe it was postmenopausal women who, um, who had higher levels of phytates uh, in their bodies measured, I think through urine. I'd, I'd have to look back at that to, to confirm. Um, they actually found that those with higher phytate levels had greater bone mineral density. Hmm. Um, whether that's a causal link or not, I, I don't know for sure, but potentially, and, and certainly not really hurting them. Yeah. Um, and then lectins would be the one that was really made popular by Stephen Gundry with the whole plant paradox thing. And, and lectins, if consumed raw, certain types of lectins can be toxic. Uh, if eaten in high amounts. So if you have kidney beans, for example, you want to have them cooked. You don't want to have them raw or undercooked because that can actually cause lectin poisoning. But the thing is, you boil beans for 15 minutes and the lectins are gone. They're right. destroyed. They're not even detectable. Um, and so we don't eat them raw. <laughs> so we're cooking them anyway and it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and like how much are we talking? Like if you have like a can of beans? Oh, well, like, can's already cooked. Yeah. So it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. Um, but I, the dose I'd have to look at. Yeah. I'd have to look at the exact dose where it becomes potentially a problem. Um, but yeah, lectins really shouldn't be an issue at all, especially if you're cooking your food. And certain types of lectins might even have beneficial properties like having anti-cancer properties and things like that. Uh, where we need more research, I wouldn't I wouldn't, you know, be super confident in saying that's going to you know, protect against cancer or anything like that. But uh, there's at least some suggestive evidence there. So um, all of these just come down to kind of misrepresenting the science. It's from what we have pretty clear and what matters most is how does consuming a lot of each food or you know, consuming each food regularly, how does it impact your overall health? And we consistently find fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds are associated with good health outcomes long-term. Yeah. You know, if Simon had a good, I keep bringing him up, but he had a really good post on this. He's like, it's all those vegetables that nobody's eating that are killing us. Yes. Right? It's like so ridiculous. <laughs> yes. I saw like, that. I thought yeah, that was funny. Everyone talks about the how these veggies are going to kill us and, you know, it's this whole conspiracy or whatever, but nobody eats them. Like if you look at USDA data um, on their food supply data, it's, it's super poor. Um, if you look at the NHANES, which another kind of US uh, uh, population data we have, yeah, nobody's eating that stuff. It's actually really sad how little is being eaten. It's yeah. terrible. 
how low it is. Um, so if they're so toxic, they're doing a really bad job of killing us. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so a couple of things that you mentioned um, there were saturated fats, mm-hmm. and there's there's been some arguments that saturated fat is good, saturated fat is bad. That's another one of these internet ones that uh, I think there's like a cloud of confusion around. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you define what saturated fats are, where they come from, and your thoughts on if they are truly good yeah. for us or not? Yeah, so saturated fats, um, they're saturated, meaning they are full of hydrogen molecules. So they're they're um, they're straight chains. They don't have any double bonds in them from a chemical perspective, which kinks it and, and can make it more fluid in, in say, the... Um, like liquid fats, vegetable oils, olive oil, things like that are, are more unsaturated fats, which is why they're liquid. Butter is more saturated fat, which is why it's solid. Um, now, saturated fat, like I said, super consistently raises your LDL cholesterol. In fact, we can calculate pretty well you know, how much you'll raise your cholesterol by adding X amount of saturated fat in. There are a few exceptions, um, one of them being uh, cheese has like less of an effect than, say, butter would. Uh, and that's probably due to what it comes with, like the calcium might actually prevent absorption of some of that mm. saturated fat and things. So it's, it's not as bad as the, the butter from that perspective. And then chocolate is another one that is, so it's actually rich in saturated fat, but it's a type of saturated fat that doesn't seem to really impact your LDL cholesterol levels and therefore uh, wouldn't impact cardiovascular risk. And chocolate's actually beneficial for cardiovascular oh, risk. So I yeah, up to a point. Up to a point. You don't want to. You don't want to be having like you know triple Kit Kats every day. Or yeah. Actually, <laughs> I, I should. Doctor Dagger said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two is okay. I think yeah. I'm all right. Yeah, I, I, I hope. Um, I hope my mom's not listening to this. I don't think she will. But I. Uh, <laughs> her, her, yeah, hopefully not. Uh, but uh, she, um, her favorite chocolate bar when she was uh, younger, before she was vegan, was Kit Kat. And so I was just in Europe and I had a, a buddy from Germany where they have uh, vegan Kit Kats right now. He gave me like 20 of them. So I'm going to, her birthday's in, in about a, a little over a month. Uh, so I'm going to have all these vegan Kit Kats for her. That's which, amazing. Yeah, so it should be good. Um, but yeah, not something to go crazy with, especially when it's loaded up with sugar and all the other stuff. Right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, but having, you know, a square or two of, of some dark chocolate, totally healthy, some some vegan hot chocolate, whatever's in this smoothie. I'm pretty sure that's chocolate that I'm yep. having right now. Some cacao nibs. Yeah. So that, that's all fine. Um, and so getting back to saturated fat and, and heart disease and why there's this misconception is because the impact of saturated fat on cardiovascular disease isn't linear. It's not a straight line. It's not like as you add more, your risk goes up. There's a, a threshold mm-hmm. at which risk goes up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it tends to be when you come from below about you know, 10% of your calories, I'd say even maybe 8% of your calories coming from saturated fat, that might be about 20 grams for the average person, um, to above 10% of calories, that's when you see a very sharp increase in risk. So that's one of the things that often gets misrepresented. You know, when you don't find an association between saturated fat and heart disease, maybe you're looking at a population where they're eating little to none and with little variation in saturated fat intake, or maybe you're comparing a population where the lowest consumers are eating like 12% and the highest like 17, 18%. And that's gonna be flat. You're not gonna see an increase in risk there. So that's one issue. Hmm. Um, Another issue is, so saturated fat raises LDL cholesterol, which then causes cardiovascular disease. Well, what if you only compare people with similar LDL cholesterol levels, right? If if we all have genetically different levels, um, and let's say Zach, has a genetic, genetically higher level, um, 
I have a genetically lower level, I'm pounding the saturated fat, Zach isn't. We might end up with the same LDL cholesterol level. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to compare us in our cardiovascular risk, you actually wouldn't see a difference, right? Obviously on a population level, you wouldn't see a difference. And a lot of studies, what they do is they adjust for LDL cholesterol, meaning that they do exactly that. They're removing the impact of the different LDL cholesterol levels, so they're comparing people with very similar levels. Right. And yeah, of course, you're not going to see a difference in risk if that's how it works, if that's how saturated fat leads to heart disease. A leads to B, B leads to C, but you just remove B as a variable or you keep it constant. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the big issues with a lot of the research. Sometimes it might be intentional by industry. Like I said, that's how they can mess with the methodology. Sometimes um, they, the researchers might actually just not be aware of that issue. And, right. And that's possible too. Like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that you know everyone who, who's doing that or every paper that's published is necessarily intentionally doing that. They just might not be super aware. Mm. Um, and in 2010, 2011, we had multiple um, meta-analyses come out where they just combine a bunch of the research and they would just throw all the studies in this pile and, and say, you know, at the end of the day, oh, look, on average, there wasn't an increase in risk. Well, did you look at that sufficient contrast from below 8% to above 10% roughly? Did you... Um, make sure that you didn't use studies that adjusted for LDL cholesterol. If not, it's useless data. And we just got another review published this year on that. Um, just taking all the garbage. And, and it was funny because they specified that they were only looking at studies within a, a you know, short period of time, about a decade from 2010 until like last year. Um, and that tends to be where a lot of the garbage came out. <laughs> and so they were narrowing their review to the papers that ultimately wouldn't tell us a lot again i don't know if that they were intentionally trying to do that or not um but uh maybe they were just trying to look at the most recent stuff which okay maybe that's fair but yeah. uh but they obviously didn't know that that was a problem um and they actually missed some of the better publications that came out during that time too which is kind of odd yeah. um which would have hopefully shed some light on the issues but that's sort of saturated fat in a nutshell and, yeah. and why there is so much confusion. It's challenging too when, you know, like once, once that information is out there, mm -hmm. it's hard to retract it because someone might, will see that study and they'll go, oh, hey, like saturated fat, it's like not, it's yeah. not that big of a deal, right? Because there's always some, hey, red, have a glass of red wine. It's not a big deal. And yeah. then the next light is like, oh, don't drink red yeah. wine anymore. And there's so many conflicting studies. But oftentimes when people see information that validates maybe like that, oh, I've, you know, I want to eat my fries and burgers and kind of mm -hmm. carry on with my life. And then now this study shows it actually doesn't have that much of a significant risk, but by, you know, not looking at, okay, who was already kind of above that threshold yeah. and how much difference would it actually make? It's miss. It's very like misrepresentational of so what can actually go on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, that's, that's sort of what we're fighting a lot. Like people who just listen to that, they know more than most people I debate online about saturated fat. Like with that, just knowing those two things, yeah. you can cut through most of the noise. And that that's the problem. It's like, it's not even that hard, or at least I don't think it's that hard or that complicated. It just, it takes time to learn those things. And once you've learned them, you can cut through all the garbage. Yeah. And it's wild too. Like just thinking back, I don't know the exact number, but like um, the percentage of calories that people get from fat in like a keto diet is high like it's oh. upwards of 80 percent or whatever and if you're saying like just that 10 to 12 percent range can put you into like the yeah. higher risk category if you're getting 80 percent of your calories from these sources of high fat you know and it is usually animal and, and saturated fat saturated yeah. fat yeah like that's 
really, <laughs> like that's really risky behavior. Yeah, and they took, um, there was a, a trial that was done where they took uh, healthy women, um, athletic women, I think, actually, and they, um, they put a certain amount of them on a keto diet, but they designed it to be kind of the, what most people do. So it was designed to be high animal fat and stuff. That's what the researchers were looking at. And man, some of the, the, the way the LDL cholesterol just rocketed up there for some of them, some were even more sensitive to the change apparently. And like, it just went absolutely wild. Wow. And you're looking at people whose levels approach that of what we call familial hypercholesterolemia, which is where you genetically have a high level. It's passed down through families. And those people have heart attacks in their twenties and thirties. Wow! Like, like that's what they're doing now. If you're doing it for a couple of weeks for a trial, it's not really going to matter that much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, provided you get back on a, a healthier diet thereafter. Um, but if you're going carnivore or animal-based keto and you're maintaining that for the next ten years, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a big problem. So um, that's that's what they're going to probably be running into at some point. Right. And what about uh, antibiotics in meat? Is that a concern? Is are they are the amounts enough to be concerned about, or is it such a minimal amount that it doesn't really matter? So I wouldn't say I'm super familiar with the research on that, like how it might transfer over to our consumption. Like again, what I look at more is is actually health outcomes. Like right. we we know that meat consumption leads to to these negative outcomes, and if someone wants to, and we know that you know the saturated fat itself is a problem, and that uh, so we know some of the components there. If someone wanted to claim that, oh, it's only because it's it's this conventional meat that has these you know antibiotics or whatever in them, that's on them to show. Right. Like, it, like the, the data is consistent when we have certain things lining up, like the range of intakes and that, um, that I would say it's on them to, to prove it. Um, otherwise, we should be cautious about it. Um, and we have, in my opinion, don't really have a good reason to think that, that um, say, I don't know, uh, pasture raised meat would be healthier right okay so if we're talking about like meat and consumption and knowing that like it carries saturated fats yeah. and that puts us at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease that's primarily like red meat right so like, well I, no I wouldn't say that so it's it's red meat and um, white meat can be uh, similar in that sense but red meat is just worse for other reasons we'll get to that in a second though so there was a study on um comparing white meat to red meat to plant protein. Um, this was done by, I believe, Christopher Gardner and colleagues at Stanford University. And what they did was they had two groups, high saturated fat and low saturated fat. And in both groups, they split them further into three groups, or, or they had them adopt one of three diets, red meat, white meat, um, or the plant protein source. But they made sure all the diets were designed to have pretty well identical or very close fiber intakes, saturated fat intakes, polyunsaturated fat intakes and, and so on just matched up super super well really the only difference was cholesterol intake because you're not going to have that in the plant protein right so it was less in that group and you still saw that both the red and white meat groups had um higher ldl cholesterol levels regardless of the the higher low saturated fat group so um in the higher saturated fat group all groups were higher than the lower saturated fat group but within that the red and white meat group had similar higher LDL cholesterol levels than the plant protein group. And then if you go look at the low saturated fat group, same deal, red and white meat had higher saturated fat or higher LDL cholesterol than the plant protein group. Right. So um, so we see that there are still other reasons and that might be the uh, dietary cholesterol component because it has an effect, it's just not that big. Okay. Um, and, and the other thing is, 
it's actually an unfair comparison because normally when you swap out meat for plant protein, you're actually going to add fiber and you're probably going to reduce your saturated fat intake. So we can expect actually an even bigger improvement by choosing plant protein. Mm. Um, now, I, that I guess didn't entirely answer your question about saturated fat in, in uh, you know, red meat versus white meat. And it, you can still have a fair amount of saturated fat in white meat. It does tend to be less than, than red meat, sure. Yeah. But it is still there. But I, I'm saying even regardless of that, we see that there could be a benefit to plant protein. And we have what are called substitution analyses, where you look at populations consuming, obviously, a variety of foods, and you model them so that, that you're comparing people with similar intakes of fiber, saturated fat, all those you know, nutrients that we'd be worried about. Um, but you look at what would happen if the rest of the diet and lifestyle was the same or very similar, but you swapped out a small part of their diet, like 3% of their calories from red meat with like plant protein or with white meat or from white meat with plant protein, uh, eggs would be another one. And you actually see that even if saturated fat is kept the same in all of that, we still see that plant protein performs better, lowers your risk of, of heart endpoints like cardiovascular disease and even all cause mortality, which is your risk of dying at all during right. a, during a given period of time um and so that tells me that there's actually other issues there and one of them could be the dietary cholesterol component the other thing with red meat is like heme iron might be playing a role um other compounds that are in there i don't think like it's interesting to look into further and to study further i don't think it matters hmm. like we already know the outcome that's what matters um the rest of it is just trying to maybe figure out why um, certain things are happening, but you don't need to know why um, to know that it does indeed happen. Right. You have the result. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That, that, that's where a lot of people mix things up online and sound super impressive. Like yeah. with vegetable oils that say, oh, it does this and oxidizes that. And, and this is involved in that mechanism in the body and whatever. I was like, I don't care what happens at the end of the day when you're consuming that food, does it ultimately raise or lower your risk of having an actual event? That's what matters. Right. And that's another thing maybe to throw back to our, our question about what to look out for. Are they looking at actual hard outcomes or are they speculating based on these mechanisms that could be going on in the body? Mm. Um, if it's the latter, then sure, it's interesting, maybe an area to research further, but it doesn't mean a lot when it comes to those hard endpoints and whether or not it's actually going to have an effect. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's that's super good. Because I know there's like been a push towards, you know, the last whatever, 10 years or so, it's like, oh, swap out your ground beef or ground turkey because yeah. it's like so much healthier and so much better. And, you know, like people, I think, are aware and they want to make a better choice. And so it happens. But if it, at the end of the day, like... I mean, I, I would say it is a better choice. Yeah. I'd say it's better health-wise. Does it mean that it's as good as choosing plant protein? No, that, right. that's where I would push back. Yeah, yeah. And then just like the, the kind of like entourage effect of like eating more plants equals yeah. more fiber. Yeah. And then the role that that's going to play. Is is fiber like uh, we know? I mean, I mean, Doctor Will Bushwitz has his whole book, Fiber Fueled, yep. like talking about eating with a high fiber diet and all this. But is it um, would fiber actually reduce things like um, your your LDL cholesterol levels, or is it simply because you're kind of like replacing calories with something like uh, that's a more fibrous food that's going to just see that drop naturally, or will it actually help your body like regulate? 
So, so fiber, um, for LDL cholesterol specifically, fiber is really helpful, especially a certain type of fiber called viscous fiber. It's kind of a, a subgroup of fiber. And that would be things like psyllium, oat bran, like those more slimy textured fibers. Okay. Um, in, if we're talking food sources, oatmeal is obviously one, uh, okra, eggplant, a lot of fruits can be. Um, they actually seem to be really powerful for lowering cholesterol. And we have randomized controlled trials looking at that. Right. Um, and fiber intake is very consistently associated with lower risk of all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, uh, colorectal cancer for sure, um, whole grains being an excellent source for that. I, I believe actually, um, I can't remember the exact rating it got, but whole grains are rated very high um, by the World Cancer Research Fund as far as being protective against colorectal cancer. I just can't remember the rating system and, and what they use there. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be a, a really good one. But... Now, going back to the whole talk of mechanisms and outcomes, the reason like LDL cholesterol lowering it is technically a mechanism, right? It's not looking at the event of a heart attack. The reason I'm confident enough saying that that, that would be beneficial is because we have so much research linking LDL cholesterol to mm. cardiovascular disease. It's very consistent and, and uh, it has been determined as far as the scientific consensus goes to be causal, to cause cardiovascular disease. And that's because if you lower it by diet, by any type of medication virtually like we have, we have tons of different medications that or if you have genetically low levels you have a lower risk um and so when it's that consistent by all these mechanisms it's not due to chance right it, it is it is helping um and so that's why in that one case i will talk about the mechanisms okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> just to be clear <laughs> yeah yeah no, that's good that's good so what about other animal-based foods like uh i see some people moving on from carnivore diet that are like okay well i'm a lacto pesco pescatarian <laughs> i think fish have a, a superior source of omegas and protein and i need the protein from my eggs um can we talk about fish and eggs yeah. and if there are concerns or if there are legitimacies uh with those as as health foods yeah so um for let's actually do eggs first let's do, just, eggs. let's do it really quick and then the fish is maybe a little bit more of a discussion okay um but for eggs we already talked about cholesterol. You know, if you if you take a vegan, you add cholesterol, LDL will spike, uh, go up quite a bit more. If you take an average person, add some, it's not going to have as much of an effect. And, and we do have research on eggs and LDL cholesterol, and we do see an association, or an, an increase. Sorry. Um, now, where where the data is is a lot more mixed is with um, actual cardiovascular events. There's a lot of research that finds that maybe it isn't associated, maybe even lowers risk. And then there's other research that shows that it raises risk. And so it's all over the place. And that's, again, largely due to that contrast in intakes. You take a population, like there's a study on half a million people out of China, looking at egg intake, found that I, I think even there was a slight decrease in risk. Now, that sounds impressive. It sounds like a you know, really big study. Uh, they had a, a pretty good adjustment model, you know, considering confounding variables and stuff. Really solid overall. The problem was they were comparing... I think like half a serving a day or something, like a, the difference of a few servings a week. Um, and it's where you have an egg a day, that sort of serving uh, or that level of intake where we see an increase in risk. And so when you look at research that has that contrast going from almost none to at least a, an egg a day, we see consistently an increase in risk as long as the adjustments, the confounding variables are, are well accounted for. Um, so I, I would be of the position that once you're at that level of intake, it would increase risk of having cardiovascular disease. And then going back to those substitution studies I mentioned, whenever you substitute eggs for plant protein, plant protein wins pretty well 100% of the time. There's like one case where the difference I think wasn't statistically significant, so we can't say for certain based on that one study. But overall, 
we see that it is super, super consistent. Mm. Um, so if you're swapping an egg scramble for a tofu scramble. Exactly. Yeah, and, and with, with the um, protein aspect, uh, as you mentioned, and, and tofu, tofu actually has more protein per calorie than eggs. Mm. Eggs, to me, aren't even a super high protein source. Like one large egg is about six grams, whereas an equivalent amount of calories from tofu is about 10 grams. Oh, wow. Or, sorry, eight grams. So it's two more grams uh, of protein. Um, so it, from a protein standpoint, it's probably a better choice too. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, from overall nutrition, eggs just aren't that impressive. Like as far as minerals and vitamins and that is there, there's nothing there that it's super high in other than choline, but you can get that from plant sources too, as well, uh, tofu being one of them, soy being one of the, the big sources. Um, and other than that, I, I don't think there's anything impressive to boast about. Interesting. Mm. Cause I feel like that's one that, uh, Bro, I could go vegan, but I need my I need my eggs <laughs> for breakfast. That's yeah. where I get my my protein. That's where I get my no nutrients. I need I, there's no replacement for eggs. Oh man, yeah, I, I've heard that a lot too. But I'm like, what nutrient are you talking about? Yes. Like, which one is it? Um, and actually, a cool thing is just egg. That product, um, as far as micronutrients, might not be on the level of eggs, but as far as like protein and, and overall macronutrients, it's pretty close to identical. Um, so they, they, I think, obviously purposeful, but. Uh, they design it to be that way. So yeah. it is actually a pretty good replacement. Yeah. And well, if you add nutritional yeast to that or tofu, like your B vitamins are going to be way higher than uh, than eggs would be. That's right. Well, shout out to local uh, local friend here, Shani. She's got her oh, yeah. Shani egg I use seasoning. It. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just, I literally made it this morning. Like just crumble up some tofu, yeah. throw it in the pan. Like it's so easy. Put it on a piece of high, like high fiber toast. And I just, you got it. You get your protein. Yeah got your grains like it's just such a simple and easy breakfast that Mm -hmm. feels like you're eating scrambled eggs yeah it's brilliant yeah Yeah. no i haven't mastered making an omelet with just egg yet though that's the one thing i need but i love it as scramble or the the tofu as you mentioned yeah Um, really good for chickpea omelet though the chickpea yeah yeah, that was good yeah chickpea omelet is good yeah Yeah. um okay so eggs not not uh not the silver bullet that some say they are for breakfast no uh what about fish like Yeah. My, my concern with fish, I see a lot of uh, fish in longevity diets. I know like Dr. Mm-hmm. Longo's put it into his, his longevity studies. Um, and people talk about the omegas and the proteins, but I like, and you can debunk both sides because I could mm-hmm. be wrong on all of this. Like <laughs> my, my concern are, because I also read things on Instagram, yeah. um, metals, uh, heavy mm-hmm. metals in fish and also microplastics, just like the yeah. state of the ocean. Um, I, I watched this one documentary uh, I think it was by Jack Johnson where they like went to the middle the furthest part of the ocean from any, any land mass and they caught some fish and cut them open and it's just their, their flesh was full of microplastics at, 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 that, uh, at that point so uh, feel free to debunk yeah. the good and the bad of, yeah. uh, so, of having fish in your diet so for starters um, as far as what are often touted as benefits is the omega-3 fats, yeah. right? the EPA and DHA that you don't get in plant foods. Now we consume um, a certain type of omega-3 called ALA from like flax seeds, hemp seeds, chia seeds, walnuts, uh, even soy. Um, and we can convert that into these longer chain omega-3s that are found in fish, but the rate of conversion, especially for the DHA, which is um, more related to like brain health mm-hmm. or nervous system health, the conversion is, is questionable. It's, it's not super great. Um, now the, the question is, well, would someone who doesn't eat fish actually benefit from consuming that? 
I say the research isn't super clear. Um, what we have, like we have studies where you have higher levels of EPA and DHA and you might have better outcomes for certain things like you know, dementias or uh, cardiovascular disease. But the problem is almost none of these studies consider the background diet. So what if you're replacing meat with fish, which is what most people do? Um, that would certainly be an improvement because you're lowering saturated fat. You can be lowering those other compounds in red meat. Um, is that why we're seeing that correlation or is it actually cause and effect? And, and another thing to kind of poke a hole in that is we have randomized controlled trials um, on supplements with omega-3s and they tend to not be that impressive. Mm. Um, you know, maybe slight improvements in some outcomes in high risk groups. So I, I do think there is reason to consider supplementation in like pregnancy breastfeeding, um, potentially in those with mild cognitive decline, especially for the DHA component. Um, and then for people with cardiovascular disease, risk factors, um, uh, potentially, again, depends on the clinical picture, uh, the EPA, but a high dose EPA is a special, like it's actually prescription um, for that, uh, that people can get through their doctors. There might be benefit there, but for the average person or for the average vegan who already tend to be at lower risk of cardiovascular disease and based on the limited data we have tend to have pretty good cognitive outcomes, I'm not convinced. I would say it's more of a precautionary measure that someone can take um, and that would just be supplementing, right? You don't need the fish for that. If that is what you're eating fish for and you wanted to ditch the fish for ethical reasons or environmental reasons. Fish. That yeah. sounds like a slogan. <laughs> <laughs> Bumper sticker. Yeah. I mean, you can just supplement EPA right. and DHA. It's super easy to do, and you can get algae-based sources. The yeah, so what, source. what about algae as a source for DHA, um, EPA, yeah. omegas? Yeah, so so we have direct comparisons with uh, fish, and it's the same. How, uh, does, it, how does it compare? Are there benefits? Are they um, so, fairly so, equal? So we don't have a lot of research, as far as I'm aware, on the algae-based supplements and outcomes, but they're like chemically the same. Okay, so, interesting. So, um, and we have research on, on uh, omega-3s from salmon versus the algae-based supplements, and uh, as far as I believe it was blood levels they looked at, uh, you saw similar improvements. Um, the fish ultimately get it from algae in the first place. Right. There might be some some alterations to it along the way, but you from know. eating smaller fish that get yeah, it from the exactly, algae. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, or, or other like uh, other zooplankton. But yeah, um, so it just makes its way up the chain that way. Um, but then flipping to the other side and people suggesting that fish is harmful because of things like potentially microplastics or, um, or heavy metals. I mean, I, I could see there potentially being an issue at really high intakes, but generally speaking, having couple servings a week, heck, even having it um, on a daily basis for, for a lot of people could actually be beneficial if replacing other animal products. Right. When we directly compare uh, fish to, to plant protein sources, again, using those substitution studies I mentioned, we don't see better outcomes. There's actually a couple where we see better outcomes with the plant protein, but those are studies where, the, where they're eating a lot of fish, and it, it could have potentially been crowding out other beneficial foods, like other plant foods. Um, but for the most part, I'd say they tend to be pretty neutral. And if there was a benefit to one over the other, there might be the slightest benefit to plant protein sources. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be confident in, in saying that. Um, uh, so I, I say from a health standpoint, I don't see a good argument against fish consumption. But who cares? Because if you want to, for ethical reasons, adopt a strictly plant-based diet or, or environmental reasons for that matter, you can do so. And if if omega-3s are what you're worried about, you can supplement. So okay. um, that's where I would leave it. Yeah. I mean, 
It's very, it's very true. I think that if you're someone who's on the fence about do, do I eat fish or do I yeah. not uh, see spiracy, yeah. listen to the episode with Ali Tabrizi. He's got a, yeah, a very, yeah. very, very convincing arguments to like ditch the fish, right? So you can get those things. As you say, it's it's more down to like the choice, but in terms of what it's actually doing for us. Yeah, and, and like with the plastics and, and the metals and that, if it were having this huge detrimental effect, we would see it in fish eaters, but we don't. We actually see a, a improvements, if anything, in like cognitive function okay. and those outcomes. Um, so let's say that they're having some kind of a negative effect. It's being outweighed by the beneficial components. Okay. And we can say that about most foods. I, heck, going back to anti-nutrients, let's say that they're this toxic thing that are in plants. Well, plants are beneficial mm -hmm. on the net, right? You look at higher consumption and, and it's better. Um, so clearly those aren't having this huge overall negative effect. And so that's kind of the way to look at it is when it comes to the outcomes, I don't think it really matters. Um, I wouldn't say remove all your plant protein sources, your, your plant rich or protein rich plant sources for exclusively fish or anything like that. You want to be having those plant sources too, with or without the fish. Okay. Um, obviously we choose without. <laughs> mm -hmm. so kind of going down that food ladder um going back to breakfast we we see a lot of dairy-based mm -hmm. yogurts as a, a healthy choice for breakfast and, and uh, cow dairy dairy milk uh, in in breakfast cereals are there concerns for those or um is it just a matter of being equal to their plant uh, plant options um how many direct comparisons do we have? That's that's a tough one. I, I would say for things like low-fat dairy and especially fermented low-fat dairy products, yeah. um, like yogurts and that, I don't see any health concerns and they, and they could be beneficial. But again, not something you couldn't really get without with plant sources. Yeah. Um, so I don't see a benefit to having them over plant sources. Um, but I just wouldn't demonize them the way that some people do from from a health standpoint because yeah. the research just isn't there to really suggest that. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say uh, there's definitely ethical concerns. Yes. <laughs> that's, a, yes. that's, that's the reason that, that I wouldn't uh, touch it. But yeah. um, And actually, we have precision fermentation now, which is um, hopefully going to be taking off where you can actually produce these dairy proteins without any animal input, just by yeast or other microbes, right? Now, I actually just ordered... It's on my counter. I haven't had it yet, but a vegan whey protein. I've seen that. Yeah. Which brand is that? Um, one? The Way Forward by uh, My Protein. Okay, I'm gonna write I just, that down. Uh, yeah, I just ordered it. I haven't had it yet. I've heard it's a really good one. It's like a brownie, chocolate brownie flavor or something. Um, and what it is, it's it's beta lactoglobulin, so it's kind of the main or, or one of the main proteins that's in whey, mm -hmm. and it actually has a higher leucine content than whey isolates so um for you know that's one of the reasons people really want whey is because it has this high leucine content which is important for triggering uh, muscle protein synthesis which presumably leads to better muscle you know strength and or muscle building strength and all of that um even though the research doesn't really show that but if that's the benefit that they're looking for well now you have an animal free version interesting right wow. you have this this uh completely animal free i would consider vegan version yeah um so that that's i think really cool really exciting and i actually tried um i tried an ice cream down in the states that, that had it and it has like the consistency of, of dairy ice cream. Mind you, I think our vegan ice creams are so good anyway that I wouldn't bother, yeah. but I just wanted to try it. Yeah, <laughs> I was excited. Yeah. I wanted to see what it's like. And yeah, it tastes really good. I had my girlfriend's parents who really liked it and they aren't vegan. And yeah, it was, it was cool. Okay. So if we dig into that protein, cause that's, uh, that's the conversation that yeah. never goes away. Yeah. 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 Uh, some people will claim, well, sure you can get 
protein from plants, but the protein quality you get yeah. from from animal meats is a higher, better mm-hmm. variation of protein. What, what do you have to say yeah, about so that? Nobody who makes that claim actually understands what protein quality means <laughs> or, or what they're what they're referring to as protein quality. So just like I was talking about with saturated fat and some of those nuanced details, anyone listening to this is going to understand protein better than just about anybody else with protein. Uh, that's I'm, I'm confident in there that. There you go. Let's um, go. So protein quality. I would consider health outcomes in the qual- definition of quality too, but let's put that aside for a second. Let's talk just le- just strictly about like strength and, and muscle building. So these measurements that people use or these um, scales that people use for measuring quality are the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score, PDCAS for short, or the digestible indispensable amino acid score or DIAS or DIAS, uh, however you pr- want to pronounce it. Um, now the PDCAS, what it does is it feeds different foods to um, typically rodents, uh, measures how much protein goes in and how much comes out the other end. The difference is presumably what was absorbed. Um, And that would be the amount that is digested or absorbed. But they do another thing. They compare it to some sort of a protein standard. Usually it's a protein that kind of meets all of our needs for all the individual amino acids if it was your only source. So, um, So if you were to eat let's say just 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, which is the RDA, and you were to only have this one source, how does it compare to the kind of reference standard? And in that case, plant proteins tend to not do as well because you might have different levels of certain amino acids. You might have some that are really low in in one or two amino acids, but higher in others. Um, But the thing is, we don't eat like that. We eat a variety of plant foods. And when you're eating a variety of plants, and you have some whole grains and some legumes and some nuts and seeds, they're going to complement each other throughout the day. And you're going to have a complete amino acid profile. Or the other thing is you just eat more protein and you'll still hit those targets, right? You don't necessarily even like you could technically just eat legumes, like eat, you know, double your protein needs, which is what is recommended for strength athletes anyway, 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. You'd still hit all your amino acid targets, right? Even if it's even if it was just one source. Yeah. Right. So, so that's how that one gets misused. But there's other issues. For one, we aren't rodents. Our, <laughs> our protein needs are different. Our digestion might be different. And so one of the ways that, oh, and it measures from mouth to anus, right? All the way through the digestive tract. And some of the bacteria in the lower intestines might actually chew up some of the protein too. So you get kind of a, you don't get a super accurate number that right. way. So then what they do is there's the DIAS score, which is similar, feed uh, protein to animals typically, measure um, how much actually exits at the end of the small intestine. So they use a tube for that. And that's typically measured in pigs, but it has the same issue with the amino acid profiles. So they measure the protein in and out, and then they compare it to a, a reference and you see, okay, if you just ate this protein source, would you meet your needs? And for a lot of plant proteins, you might not, if you just had your minimum intake. Um, well. The other thing is we aren't pigs, even though that's closer uh, to a model of, of, say, a human's gut. Uh, but the other thing is they often use raw foods. So even legumes or whole grains might be fed raw. And when you cook them, you can actually increase the digestibility by degrading certain things that prevent absorption. Right. Um, so that's another issue. What we should be doing, for one, is looking at cooked legumes. And if you do that, even in pigs, we see higher absorption. Actually, if you look at like soy milk or tofu or seitan, um, those products that are you know broken down to a degree and 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 uh, cooked or pasteurized or whatever, you see pretty darn good numbers hmm. as far as absorption or uh, digestibility. 
but we should also be looking into humans, not pigs. And we have very limited data on that, on people with like, ileostomy bags, for example. So you don't have to insert a tube. They already have one there. Yeah. Um, and in that case, the difference between at least high quality animal protein sources and high quality plant protein sources is maybe a few percent at most. Really? It's tiny. It, it's negligible. Hmm. Um, and that's when you're com comparing all of the protein, not limiting it to whatever specific amino acid you want to, to you know, look at as the one that it contains the least of. Right. Yeah. But in that case, you might see that plant proteins are 40% less digestible in some cases than, than a high quality animal protein like whey. Right. But in reality, we want the overall digestibility number because you're not going to be eating just one food. You're going to be eating a variety. Um, and the funny thing is they always compare to whey protein, which is like the highest quality of the animal proteins. Um, but we have research comparing certain plant protein sources like mycoprotein, uh, which is used in the corn products that are available over in like the UK and that, um, and you see that it might actually trigger muscle protein synthesis more than, um, casein, which is also an animal protein. Like the, it totally depends on the sources you're comparing to. Right. And that's kind of a, a side note, but, um, it's just the way that uh, I call it mental gymnastics, the way that they, they try to justify um, animal protein as, as being of higher quality in some way when, you know, once you know the details of how that's measured and what's being compared, it just all kind of breaks down. Mm -hmm. um, and none of that matters because we have research on protein supplementation and actual strength or muscle gains. Right. And super consistently, if you're eating the same amount of protein and you're eating an adequate amount of overall protein, um, you're, you know, uh, you have similar muscle and strength gains uh, between animal and plant proteins without any significant differences, even if you directly compare strict vegans to omnivores. Right. So there is, in my opinion, no real argument at this point, um, at least no good argument. And if there's a difference, it's trivial. It's so small that it's actually hilarious to debate about. Right. <laughs> because you could overcome it by eating just slightly more anyway. Well, that's just the thing. <laughs> like, that's the thing. That's the thing, right? It's like, if you, I'm just, I'm just, listen, as you're listening here, I'm thinking, okay, so you got your, you got your morning smoothie, you put your like, whatever, let's call it pea protein in there, yeah. soy milk, maybe you add a block of, you know, a cube of tofu, some hemp seeds, like, you're hitting a lot yeah. of protein right there. You have some beans at lunch. Like yeah. you, you've got a diverse protein. And even if you come to that negligible difference where you're the bro in the gym next to you, yeah. you know, had a steak for lunch and yogurt with milk and whatever yeah. else. And his is like, you know, marginally higher than yours. To me, it comes back to, okay, we're both in the gym for what reason? Yeah. Health and wellness. And like who has the long-term positive mm -hmm. effect it's like well okay what have you consumed in terms of the extras that come along with the meat protein versus someone who's consumed perhaps a little bit marginally less in the protein but hasn't consumed all of these other you know uh negative impacting health things they're uh, forgive me your uh, <laughs> the saturated yeah, fats yeah. the cholesterol like you're missing all that yeah and maybe the trade-off is like missing a few grams of protein yeah and there's the environmental impact too Absolutely. we can't ignore but the the really funny thing about the protein stuff is even if we consider the differences or the impact that protein has say consuming that 1.5 or 1.6 grams versus consuming just the rda of 0 0.8 i mean i think it is beneficial to go above for right. sure not just for muscle gains but even for for health you know going up to at least 1.2 grams per kilogram seems to be a typical recommendation which is really easy to do yeah um but that aside the impact of protein on strength and muscle gains is pretty darn small overall. 
if you go from like a 0.8 grams up to a 1.5 or 1.6, yeah, it's better by what, like five, six, seven percent or something. Like it's not a huge earth shattering difference. And then what people are arguing about with animal versus plant protein is of that small percentage, they're arguing about a difference that is so tiny, or might not even exist, but if it exists, is so tiny that we literally can't measure it by today's <laughs> by what's available to us today. Yeah, like like we don't have the tools to measure such a tiny difference. Oh, that's so funny. Like that's a hilarious thing yeah. to me. So on the plant side of things, is there uh, a hierarchy of proteins that you recommend, or is it just eat a diverse diet and get your protein from a multitude of places? Um, definitely eat a diverse diet. I do like to emphasize, you know, including a protein-rich food as like a centerpiece to at least a couple meals a day. Say you're eating three meals, at least, you know, two of them or so. Um, because like I said, higher protein intake, especially from plant sources, does tend to be better for long-term health outcomes. Um, and you know, I like recommending things like tofu, um, seitan is a great one that maybe not everybody is familiar with. It's a wheat based protein. So if you're gluten intolerant or something, maybe not the best for you. Um, but otherwise a super good source and, and has about as much, if not more protein than even lean meat per calorie. So it's a really good one. Uh, soy milk, as far as a plant milk is easily mine of choice. Like a cup of oat milk, I think is three grams of protein or something. Um, soy milk, uh, if it's unsweetened is like eight plus grams. Uh, so that's a really good one. Um, lentils, beans, chickpeas are okay. They're not actually that that great. Um, I tend to favor legumes and other beans above that. Lupini beans are really good uh, for protein. Um, oh, and lentil pastas. That's a big mm, one there. Yeah, lentil or, one, yeah or chickpea. So I had, uh, this was last week, the chickpea, you know that brand? Yeah, mm -hmm. so I, I had their like mac and cheese. I got it from Juice Track. Amazing. Actually, shout that's out. where I bought it. Yeah, I shout <laughs> that out. I bought, so two packs. And I, I made both packs. I was real hungry. <laughs> I think I might have skipped a meal that day or something. So I, I made both packs and I ate them all. And with that and the soy milk, I had like 80 grams of protein in a wow. meal. Wow. <laughs> like it was insane. Yeah. And I just thought it was hilarious because, you know, you can be concerned about that. But le like legume pasta is, is the other than protein powder, like yeah. the best way for me to get it in oh, there. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. yeah. And there's so there's so many now. Yeah. So, like, we have uh, we've won five five bean linguine or whatever, and it's got all it's made out of all these different like beans. Edamame, and, yeah, and you look yeah. at the protein count and you're like, man, you could literally just eat the noodles. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, be so you, full. Here's the thing. You you take a, a regular pasta with meat sauce and you compare it to a legume pasta with just plain tomato sauce, yeah. it would wipe the floor with protein content. It wouldn't even be close. Yeah. Um, that's, that's how good these, and you get a ton of fiber, fiber and stuff with well. it too. Fiber, iron, all these other, you know, nutrients. It's awesome. Would you mm -hmm. call it, would you call it a superfood? <laughs> if, if I was going to call anything a superfood, I might call that that one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Dr. Matthew Negra's superfood pasta coming soon. <laughs> that's right. So, okay. Just hanging on protein for a second, then we can move on. If, if I'm at a supplement store and I'm, you know, still convinced that I need to take a protein shake after my, my lift at the, at the gym. Mm -hmm. Um, like, are you looking at, uh, pumpkin protein, pea protein, hemp, chia, I've even seen potato protein. Um, are you looking for one that's like a mix of all of these or do you, or do you choose one over the other? Um, I go for texture more than anything, okay. honestly. So you're I, just going for flavor yeah, and yeah. it's like, like, so if you, if you really wanted to ensure that you if these differences exist that, yes. that you wanted the the best possible um i would look for one that has at least two grams of leucine per yeah. serving which is one of the amino acids yeah um two two and a half grams something like that per serving 
that could be potentially a pea-based one or a soy-based one. Um, Potato-based, if that's I haven't seen that anywhere, but that could be one is, is that would be high in leucine. Um, those would be the ones probably to go for. But like for me, I think a lot of the ones that I buy end up being around the 1.8 to 2 gram mark. And if I'm falling a little short, I mix it with soy milk anyway, right. so I don't care. Like it would bump it up a little bit anyway. Like a, um, so I, I don't stress about it. So the moral it, of the story is don't stress it yeah, so much. And, and and if you're if you're consuming that 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, so for like a 150 pound person, I think that works out to about 100 grams or so, maybe just over that. Um, then you're probably not going to have to worry about leucine at all. It'll it'll just come yeah. with, with all of that. So that's kind of the way that I would look at it. Yeah. Well, and the reality is, like, we, it's so funny because when you have the vegan conversation or the plant based conversation, yeah. protein is so central. It's so central. And really, like most modern people, especially certainly living in North America, like I I don't know if I've ever heard of anyone being protein deficient. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's certainly a thing. Yeah. But like most people aren't having some sort of severe injury or illness or you know episode in their life because they're lacking protein like it's it's very to the degree that it's obsessed over exactly the uh, importance of it versus the obsession for it don't uh yeah right well that's the thing so yeah protein deficiency doesn't really exist in in developed countries uh, for the most part um, but I would say that again, having higher intakes than just the bare minimum RDA is still beneficial. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so, but the thing is where we see those benefits kind of peak is, is probably around 1.1, 1.2 grams per kilogram, which most people are eating more than anyway, right. where, where it becomes a challenge is especially an elderly where maybe they don't have the appetite. They aren't eating as much. They right. aren't, they aren't doing that resistance training, which could be super helpful. Like those are cases where I could see it being more challenging. Um, but for the average person, it's like the last thing they need to worry about. Yeah. Like we should be more concerned about what, how much fiber have you? Exactly. Eaten yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want to get into some vegan, uh, some, maybe some untrue bias on a, Ooh. on a plant-based diet. Are there, cause we, I, I think our, our community can also fall to the same cruxes as carnivores mm-hmm. and think that you know, eating vegetables is the answer to everything. Maybe it is. I hope it is. <laughs> but I'm sure there are untrue biases that we mm-hmm. propagate uh, and celebrate as well. Are there are there any that um, come to mind? Yeah, there's one actually. I made a post on recently. Just you know, people claim that that the healthiest diet is a is a strictly plant based vegan diet. Yeah, and that just hasn't been shown. Yeah. Um, what we know is that there are several dietary patterns that are all plant based. You have the Mediterranean, the Dash portfolio. And it could be a strictly vegan one as well. Yeah. Um, and we have data on those suggesting that they're very similarly very healthy. The reason to choose the strictly plant-based approach is not concerns over a little bit of animal protein causing cancer or whatever somebody wants to say. It's that you don't want to contribute to the mass killing of insulin and uh, suffering of billions so, or trillions, if you include fish. It's the, other, it's the other variables of exactly. ethics, moral compass, yeah. environmental, clim- climate change. Exactly. That kind of tilt things towards the plant. Diet. Yeah, and those, I think, are undeniable. Yes. I, I don't, come at me, you know. I don't, I'll take on that debate any day. I, I don't think there's a good good argument against it, but but it's not like I don't think we should be promoting misinformation to yeah. sell our, our yes. sell our ethical beliefs, you know. Yes. Yeah, invite invite people to experience like how they can jump on board and get you know kind of peek behind the curtain. Yeah. Oh, there's lots of good documentaries and books and things that people can read to see. Oh man, okay, and then you have to make a decision: Do I want to participate in this or not? 
or in to what degree do I want to participate? But yeah, you can, I don't think you can, you yeah. can dupe people into being like, Oh, it's the best for your health. So yeah. You got to do it. Yeah. 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 And then, you know what? I, I just want to pause here and say, cause a number of times throughout our conversation, I just want to uh, acknowledge like how I think what a good job you do of, of holding true to like the data and the facts and saying like your, your bias is everyone should be plant-based go vegan. Like yeah. it's just better for you. It's better for the environment, but you don't ever allow your passion and your conviction for that to get in the way of, of presenting the truth. And I just, I really appreciate that. I think it's like, cause sometimes we often see people who are passionate and convicted and they will like blur the truth maybe to like align with their personal values. And I think that that's, well, you do a really good job of. Yeah. I'd things. say thanks for that. But I, I used to like, that's the thing there, there was a time when I, it's not because I, I, um, knew that I was trying to dupe people or something is that I truly believed a lot of the things that are propagated and then mm. the arguments sounded convincing in ways that I've talked about, you know, the ways that, that it's presented. And it wasn't until I really learned how to dive into the data and, and form formulate my own opinions or really until I was proven wrong by people to people had responses to me that I just didn't know the answer to. Right. Um, but they weren't just like, Oh, you're an idiot. And then left. I got them to explain it. I think that's the hard thing is, mm. is a lot of the times when I reach out to someone on, say someone tags me on something like, Hey, what do you think of this? I'll say, you know, the reference doesn't support this, whatever. Um, people get offended. And I, I try not to do it aggressively. I'm just like, Hey, can I, can you share the references? Oh, this is what I took from it, whatever. Um, and when people explained it to me that way and, and actually showed what the research says and why my interpretation was incorrect or why my belief was incorrect, I just accepted it. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to argue with that. I, I think it looks way worse from even an ego standpoint. Yes. If you listen to my four-hour debate with, uh, <laughs> with uh, yes, kudos. Yeah, on, on, the, on Simon's <laughs> podcast about seed oils, and I think in not wanting to admit that he was wrong about certain things, he bought the bullet on some ridiculous positions, like right. saying that, oh, heart attacks don't matter if they don't kill you, or or that mayonnaise and canola oil were the same thing. Or like, like those are literally the types of things that he had to accept yes. in order to cling to his own beliefs. Yeah. And that's, that just looks terrible, in my opinion. You start to look silly. Yeah, it's just, if you're wrong, you're wrong. It's okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, move on. You know, it start to share that information instead, but uh, mm -hmm. but some people, I guess, get too attached. Yeah, mm -hmm. but kudos to you because it is it is a hard thing to to maybe be shown and be like, oh shoot, I was wrong about that, and now how do I adjust it, and not necessarily throw everything else out, but say, okay, can I can I still hold true to like all of these things, but now incorporate this new knowledge or say, hey, yeah, you know what, There's, this is what the evidence shows, but personally, I still think mm -hmm. this diet is the best diet for all of these reasons, yeah. but the data doesn't support it conclusively or exclusively yeah. and yeah i think that in a world of polarization and you know name calling and just doubling down yeah, and yeah. you know holding on to things that make you look kind of silly like i just i feel like your voice is so um fresh and it's it's really nice to hear yeah that you you will present the facts as is even if it's like not exactly what you would hope it would show right? yeah or, or suit your agenda yeah exactly um i think like you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but isn't the scientific method is to continually explore mm -hmm. what's best and what's what, what's better, you know? So, like, we could find out that, you know, 
say fish are good, but then if we find out through science that something is better, like we'll continue to explore if there's something better than than that, right? I mean, yeah, generally you're just trying to, to learn new things, really. Yes. I mean, that, that's what it comes down to and, and to expand our knowledge and to question your own hypotheses. Like yes. that's really the point yes. is you want, you want to try to prove yourself wrong, if anything. Yes. Um, but so, most so people don't want to do that. Science, <laughs> yeah. If you're being proven wrong, then yeah. science is is doing its part right yeah exactly yeah interesting we could all learn from that i think dean and i were talking about this this is kind of getting off course but like almost pursuing to be wrong in things i think is like we're all so attached to our 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 beliefs and our convictions that if we pursue being wrong it allows so much possibility Mm -hmm. um and and we can be in a state of learning if we're open to being wrong you know Mm -hmm. i agree Okay, I got one more here, and then uh, we can see where we go from that. Um, one I hear regularly is, well, this is eating for my my biology, for my... Oh, blood type or something? For my like blood that? type, yeah. for how my ancestors ate. This is how, you know, they ate in the country of my origins. So this is the diet that mm. is is best for me. Is there is there merit to that? Um, well, let's... I'm going to hit on the blood type thing specifically first, and then we'll, yeah. we'll, as a general, we'll go over the whole thing because I actually wrote an article on the blood type diet. Okay. It's on my blog, anybody who wants to check Amazing. that out, my website, um, drmatthewnagra.com. There I'll shout it, say, I'll, it. I'll, yeah, I'll shout it out. Why not? <laughs> um, but uh, so with the blood type diet, it's this idea that certain types of plant compounds, plant proteins react with your blood type in a certain way and um, is largely based on on studies where they dripped blood on um, on different sorts of proteins and you see if it like clumps up or not and the kind of theory was if it's if it's agglutinating if it's clumping up then that's gonna have negative effects in your body the thing is our biology is a little more complex than a a petri dish like that and so um, what you ultimately need to do is is study, you know, if people adhere to what their blood type diet would be based on that type of research, do they have better outcomes? And now the um, there's Dr. Diadamo, I believe is his name, uh, the one who kind of came up with it, Eat Right for Your Type, was the name of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, he got a lot of pushback when the book came out. And he just kept telling people, oh, don't worry, guys, I have this trial coming out. Uh, I don't know how many, it was like on arthritis, I think, and, and it was supposed to be a several weeks or, or whatever it's like don't worry we're getting good results it'll be out and it's been like 20 years and that never got published 30 years maybe at this point oh never never came out um and then in 2004 oh no that was that was cancer i think and then this one in, in 2004 was the book on arthritis rheumatoid arthritis and same deal got a lot of pushback said oh we're doing this trial on rheumatoid arthritis and um you know we're getting good results we'll be publishing it soon that never came out either so mm-hmm. either poor results or what might be more likely is just wasn't doing it in the first place. Right. It was just all talk. Just little marketing. Yeah. So what other researchers did, and there have been a couple independent studies on this now, one of them out of uh, PCRM, Neil, Dr. Neil Bernard, um, they looked at, you know, uh, some data on people who were with varying blood types, who had information on their blood types and adherence to plant-based diets. And regardless, they ended up doing better, hmm. uh, eating more plant-based. Hmm. And that's two independent studies. Um, so if anything, the data points to it doesn't matter uh, what your blood type is. You can likely benefit from eating a more plant-based diet. Yeah. So that would be the, the quick answer to the blood type issue. Now, as far as kind of individual nutrition, just in general, 
the science isn't there. And I suspect if there are benefits, like I, I fully agree that, you know, certain people react to different foods in different ways, especially with like gut health and things like that. They might feel better eating a lower carb diet versus a higher carb diet and vice versa. Uh, some of us are lucky where we can kind of eat either way and we tend to feel good. Um, but I don't think the science is there as far as telling us who would benefit most from which approach. And I would suspect for long-term health outcomes, um, like heart outcomes, like cardiovascular disease and that wouldn't matter. I, I think, uh, barring the very rare exception, um, it wouldn't matter. And, and we can, uh, um, likely all benefit in the long term from adopting a, a more plant-based diet, mm -hmm. um, and we actually have research on like genetic variants where people might be genetically predisposed to eating like a higher carb versus lower carb diets and, and vice versa. This was done by Christopher Gardner, uh, the diet fits study and both diets were designed to be pretty healthy, whether it's the higher carb or the, the lower carb, higher fat. And as far as like weight loss outcomes and other, um, other cardiometabolic, um, risk factors, similar outcomes either way for, for most markers other than the LDL cholesterol was a little bit better in the, uh, the lower fat, higher carb group because they were just eating less saturated fat. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, like weight loss was similar. Um, and that was based on like genetics as well. Like it didn't matter if they were genetically predisposed to metabolizing carbs better or worse. Interesting. Um, so yeah, so I would say the science we have suggests that it probably doesn't have much of an effect. And if it does have an effect, it's probably pretty small. Um, barring things like allergies or intolerances and the obvious ones. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I'm feeling pretty convinced like plant-based, you know, diet is, is the best thing, but I'm just not ready to go mm -hmm. like, you know, all the way, all the way into it. The carnivore thing would be whole hog, <laughs> right? Like, hey, I, I'm not ready to like commit all the way. Um, is it, is it like an all or none kind of thing in terms of reaping the benefits or is it like, okay, as you do like mild replacements, maybe like, what, is there a percentage that you say is a tipping point or if you can do a little bit, it's going to go a long way or no, you got to commit to the bit and like go, um, go full vegan. So it, it's definitely not all or nothing. It's, it's never all or nothing. I mean, even like the association between fiber and, and health outcomes is, is, um, like just the more fiber you eat, the, the better the outcomes tend to be in the long term. Um, so adding more fiber rich plant foods in your diet is going to be a good step. Um, I would say that I like the approach of starting with a meal, like a single meal, you know, pick breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I, I think breakfast is usually an easy one. Yeah. Um, start with that for a couple of weeks, explore that, you know, try a few different things. You got your oatmeal smoothies, some whole wheat toast or, uh, tofu scrambles. If you want to be a little more elaborate. I'm too lazy for that. I yeah. do that maybe once in a while, but, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, just things like that and, and try to figure out, okay, what recipes do you like and, um, and rotate through those. And then when that's a habit, hopefully after two, three, four weeks, move on to the next meal and go from there and just, you know, keep expanding. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you don't need to go all the way right off the bat. I think each step is going to be helpful and just helps kind of build those patterns and, mm -hmm. and yeah. So you mentioned fiber a few times on the podcast today. Um, if someone is wanting to increase their fiber in their diet, um, what are some great sources of fiber and what sort of long-term results might we see from increasing fiber? Um, well, I mean, whole plant foods, really. Uh, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Uh, yep. Those would be your fiber sources. And there's different types of fiber amongst them. But just to keep it really simple, I would say just try to be diverse with it. You know, yep. have a little bit from each of those groups if you can. Um, 
uh, unless you want to go real deep, but I feel like that's good enough advice, yeah. honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that's, I think that's, you're going to get a fiber yeah. if you're yeah. those Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I would suggest, but I would also say that, especially if you're going from like a standard American or Canadian diet and uh, you're not eating very much fiber, you're eating a lot of ultra processed foods, if you went like all in, like whole foods plant-based overnight or something, you might have some gut problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might end up with gas bloating and those sorts of things. So I do like the slower approach, um, you know, slowly increasing fiber, which is how that, you know, one meal at a time tends to be good for that. Um, especially with like legumes, beans and things, uh, they can make you gassy and, and a couple ways to deal with that is for one, introduce slowly, as I mentioned, or soak overnight before cooking. Um, if you can, or, I mean, if they're canned, you can't really do that, but rinse really well. Um, it just helps remove some of the compounds that cause that gas. Mm. So, um, that's just another easy tip. Yeah. That's a common one I've heard from people who've been like, yo man, I tried to go vegan for like a week and so gassy, so bloated, my stomach that I was like, well, when's the last time yeah. you ate like that many beans? <laughs> yeah. And like never. Like, yeah. Yeah. What do you expect? Dial it back. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Slow, slow and sure. Right. Keep your, allow your body to adjust and keep finding that new, new balance. Yeah, point. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. Well, we've poked some holes in some, some trendy topics, mm-hmm. uh, to kind of land with some, uh, helpful, um, kind of a bit of a helpful, uh, guide for people that are, are looking to make these changes. If we're talking about optimal health, living a optimally healthy life, um, what does that look like for you? Like, is that eight hours of sleep? Is that three meals a day, two meals a day? Are you, you know, what, what does like a healthy, holistically speaking, day look for yourself including your your movement your diet your sleep your your water intake what would that look mm-hmm. like so i don't i don't know if i really use the term optimal health because i feel like that can mean something different for everybody right. and and like what if you know what if it means being you know everyone says free of disease or, or something well what if you yeah. have a genetic disease or right like, can you not achieve good health or, you know it, yes respective to whatever your your lifestyle is or what you're able to do. So what I tend to think is, is just like doing your best, you know, tr- trying to take care of your health in the ways that you, you can, uh, yep. to, to your best ability. And, and for me, that looks like, um, eating, you know, a, a ton of fiber eating. I, I try to eat from, you know, fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts, and seeds every day. I try to eat from each of those groups. Um, you know, a few servings, uh, ideally. So that's one. I, try to sleep well i was at a couple concerts this past weekend so i or past week so um sleep was lacking but for the most part i try to be consistent or pretty consistent with that um uh, hydration is, is a big one i don't really count my water like i just always have a bottle or some tea at yeah. my desk when i'm working on stuff so i'm and when i'm at the clinic between patients i drink like every single time uh between every patient i, I make sure to have a few sips um and the amounts that people need will, will vary depending on, on a variety of factors. Like I, I sweat a lot and I'm very physically active, so I probably drink more than the average person. And that's the other thing, physical activity. I try to do something every day, whether that's running, playing soccer, uh, lifting weights, you know, whatever I'm able to, to squeeze in there. Um, and obviously we were talking before this, I got a little injury right now, so hoping to, to get out of that so I can be a little more active even, but still doing my best. Um, and... I think that's really, those are some of the core tenets for me. And I, I think you already named them beforehand. It's super basic, you know, yeah. a, you know, I love that though. Cause I think that 
like these diets, these trendy diets that we're talking about, people are looking for the silver bullet, but yeah. the truth is just like kind of it's less sexy and it's being consistent. It's eating consistency is the big one. Yeah, that's it. It's just being consistent. If you, you know, if that's a thing falling off the wagon or whatever, if, if you if you slip up in any way, shape, or form, who cares? Yeah, yeah. just get back to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the silver bullet really is consistency. Yeah, but it's not the silver bullet people are looking for. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. It's like oh, they want the kale buster. Supplement. They want the kale. Yeah. Bu- we, we should yeah. sell consistency as a subscription model. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, Damn, I just need to do this every week That's as right. best as I can, yeah. and not be too hard on myself if I uh, slip up, like you said. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So we don't have to worry about all these health trends. Be consistent. Get your sleep. Eat your. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes. Whole grains. Whole grains. Yeah. Mushrooms. Do mushrooms count in there? I, I'll in throw them in the veggie section, the veggie probably, even though they technically... They might argue yeah. with you. They're yeah, like, hey. yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so Mo- good. Move your body, get some sleep, and we'll be okay. Yeah. Okay. Dina, you got anything else before we uh, ra- round this, uh, land this plane, so per se? Let's do Podcast it. is a plane, I would say. Yeah. We, we need a little more good plane or something like that. <laughs> It's That'll be our booth when, when we really make it, you know, clim- climate justice warriors. Oh, no. I was going to say, yeah. Join our plane and yeah. we'll talk until we land it. Oh, man. It'll just be like an old fuselage that we'll be recording. It won't actually fly. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, no, I think we I think we covered off a lot of what I was hoping to touch on and, and more, honestly. Um, it reminds me, even the first conversation, we'll just shout it out, that we had with you very early on in, in the podcast days. You were... Um, one of our early guests and really, really kind of just like hammered you with, it was like the plant-based nutrition one-on-one kind of thing. Yeah. And I feel like this might be a lot of the, some of the same stuff anyway. I can't really remember. This, this is the 201. Yeah. This is, this is, the, this 201. is the 201. Yeah. But uh, so good to have you back and kind of uh, cover over this stuff. So I, I feel like um, you, you're an amazing resource for people. So grateful for, like I said, all, all of the work you do at taking the big, the big kind of topics and studies and um, using, using your, your knowledge and expertise to, break it down into um, things that people can really t- digest, right? And understand. So no, really appreciative of your work. I don't know, Zach, do you have anything else to add? I've got one last question. And yeah. then I know we skipped our closer with uh, with the good doctor over here last time because we hadn't. Uh, oh, no. Far. Um, but one thing that I think you've also done is is collect a great community of, of, of individuals that are great resources. So uh, if we may, could you just give some shout outs to mm-hmm. some individuals that you think are are people that are sharing, you know, trusted information that are good resources for for learning and discovering, you know, what can be healthy for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, Simon, we had talked about a lot. I, I think he's really good. He's always I mean, this is what he does. You know, so si- is, Simon Hill. Simon Hill. Yeah, know. Simon Hill. Yeah, no, everyone should know. So I just say Simon. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Simon Hill, um, super good. We, we talk basically every day about this stuff. And he's always you know exploring new topics. And I think he does a good job breaking it down. And he yeah. gets a lot of you know, experts on his podcast too, to talk about that. And he gets people with opposing views too, which is, yes. is cool. Yeah. Hopefully they all, don't all uh, end up in four hour debates, you know, like endless debates <laughs> like I had, but, uh, but yeah, I think he does a really good job with that. The proof, uh, the proof is his podcast. Yeah. Too, right? yep. yeah. Yeah. And then there's also uh, another guy who's actually in a group chat with me and Simon is uh, Matt Medor. He's a, a master's uh, in, in nutrition uh, student right now. And, and he's, I, I would say he's probably the most, brilliant person 
when it comes to nutrition science, who I know and, uh, and Matt, regularly talk Matt to. Madore. Madore, M-A-D-O-R-E. Um, he's not huge on social media, but is on Twitter and is a really good person to follow. Uh, he does every now and then, you know, breaks down a topic, a complex topic or responds to some, you know, misinformation uh, in like super good detail. Might be a little much for some people who aren't as plugged into the space, but as someone who is like, I love reading that stuff and definitely learn from him and, and always throw stuff back and forth with him as well. Uh, and another one, Dr. Gil, uh, I always mess up his last name, Carvalho or Cavalio. Uh, I can't remember if there's an R in there. Um, he is on YouTube at Nutrition Made Simple. That's his YouTube channel. And he does an awesome job breaking down these complex topics into like pretty simple, you know, 10, 12, 13 minute videos. Uh, and, um, and yeah, just the way that he, he does these analogies and things to just explain these, these topics, I think is super good and, and just really easy for people to understand. And he tends to hit the big ones, like the big topics where you're going to have the biggest impact by maybe learning about that and, and uh, breaking it down. So I, I'd say those are a few who I think are like exceptional. And then yeah. obviously I can, I can go off with, with more and more, but those would be yeah. a good place to start. Do you still source like Dr. Gregor or Will Bushwitz um, or any of those so, guys? Well, so Will, I, I mean, I follow him on, on Instagram. I haven't been as, I think he took a bit of a break. Yeah. So I haven't been following his stuff as much because he like just came back after having a kid and stuff, right? Okay. So, that so, so I, yeah. yeah, so I haven't, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I haven't followed what he's been doing as much lately. And then with, with Dr. Gregor stuff, I mean, um, so Certainly some of his, his stuff like the, the videos on saturated fat and that were really good early on, but I just, I, I'm getting into other, other things now, you know, yeah. just more, more complex topics typically. And, and I would say, um, accuracy wise, whether he's maybe oversimplifying certain things or, or, um, you know, there are, there are things that maybe I, I would say aren't a hundred percent accurate. Um, they go in there where, where I, I just tend to, to promote like say Dr. Gill over that because I think he, um, he explains things in more detail and, and just tends to be as like unbiased and accurate as possible as you can be. Yeah. Um, just the way that he goes about it. I think he's, he's phenomenal and he's someone who's really growing. I think he's at a hundred something, uh, subs now and, and hopefully keeps going from there. Amazing. Very cool. Cool. Our dinner. Well, and you, you have something new coming out. Do you want oh, to yeah. talk about yeah. that? Yeah. I think that's awesome important. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, obviously people can follow me on like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of that at Dr. Matthew Nagra. Um, pretty simple with a period dr. Matthew Nagra. Um, but on top of that, because, you know, I, I share these like one minute clips and I, you know, try to break down these topics. I find it really hard to get into detail like we did today and um, to respond to everybody uh, sometimes, especially when they tag me on all these things. So I'm actually launching, it's going to be like a little community um, title pending, but uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks here. And uh, it'll be sort of like a membership, the monthly fee, and we'll have like a private group and I'll do weekly video discussions, like long form, you know, an hour or whatever on different topics or do Q and A's. And I've actually got some patient handouts um, that I've designed, like one on cholesterol lowering uh, that will be, you know, exclusive to them, at least at the beginning. Um, and I actually today interviewed Phil Collin from Def Leppard. Yeah, uh, who's who's vegan um, as well. Amazing. So we did like a you know forty five minute chat, and we'll probably do another one hopefully in person sometime. Uh, he's just been a, a really you know good friend actually over the past decade or so, and I don't know how that happened, but it did. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and so um, gonna make that at least for the first bit exclusive as well. And so just things like that, you know, yeah. have some exclusives, have a lot of more intimate conversations about these things, and be able to hopefully explore these so that eventually I would like to still, you know, have my clinical practice, but maybe 
down to a couple days a week and I can spend more time on the education aspect because I really love doing that. Mm -hmm. I love sharing all this information, but it's really hard to do when it takes you know a full a full day just to to sometimes write up one or two posts and, yes. and things where um uh that you know I just can't afford to do that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> so, no doubt. So yeah. that that's I'm hoping that it helps on that and then gives a lot of people something to to look yeah. forward to as well. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I can think of how many times I've slid into your DMs be like, yo, doctor, should <laughs> yes. I get this creatine or should I, I get this or that? I got Phil Collin on that, on the, creatine. on the creatine. Phil from Def Lever, yeah, he's, he's on, the, he talks about it in the recording we did, actually. Oh, oh, I feel like you like, were a uh, pioneer in the new wave of, of creatine. Like, yeah. uh, since yeah. our... Since I heard you talk about it, I've heard Simon and, yeah. and numerous other people, yeah. even uh, Darren Oline, talk about... Uh, you know, the importance of everyone should be taking some amount of <laughs> I'd like so. to take credit, but I don't think that's coming yeah, from me. In our bubble. Yeah. I say, the in one, our bubble, the, you broke it. The creatine in my cupboard is is uh, all thanks to you. There you and go. Reach out. There's two people right here. Yeah. Where's the affiliate? Where's yeah. the affiliate? Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but yeah. if someone's interested, they, they love what they heard here. Check you out on Instagram. Love it. And they want to they wanna come see you in person. They can also book in yeah. with you. So, You're a naturopathic yeah. doctor. So anyone who's in uh, Vancouver, obviously, you can come right into my clinic. Um, see me there. Uh, you book online through my website or call in. Um, and the other option is if you're anywhere in BC. So unfortunately not outside of BC, but anywhere in BC, I can do online like video appointments yeah. as well. So that's always an option. And uh, it's cool to like, you know, seeing patients in the Okanagan or on the island is just super cool. That's, that's great. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Dina. Amazing. So since we had you on the podcast last time, we've developed this kind of like closing question. Okay. You, may, you may or may not have heard I, it. I've definitely heard it, but I can't remember what it is. <laughs> so I'm not good. prepared. No, no, it's all it's good. Okay. Okay. It's an off the cusp kind of quote. That's okay. right. It's always best when there is no preparation. Okay. Um, obviously, we call the podcast a little more good. Yeah. That's what we want to see do kind of put out in the world. And we always love to hear from our guests. Like, what does that mean to you? A little more good. Yeah, it's, I think to me, and yeah, I'm not prepared, so this is off the cuff. Oof, um, but go. anyways, yeah, to um, to me, it would mean just you know intentionally trying to do something to you know better yourself or better the world around you, you know, each and every day, really. I mean, you know, whether that's the choice of what you're eating, or I mean, helping someone across the street or something, you know, just doing something something a little bit better than maybe otherwise you would. I love it. <laughs> I love, I love it. Off the cuff. Yeah. Full of truth. Well, thank you, Dr. Matthew Negro. Uh, grateful as, as just echoing Dean, grateful for the space that you hold, the information that you share, uh, just that you make things that are otherwise confusing, palatable for all of us uh, regular folks. And um, I think you illuminate a lot to, to make this, this world you know, a better place. So you are creating a lot more good and uh, we're grateful for you. Thank you grateful for you guys too with everything you're doing and taking off it seems you know after after that first uh interview way back when yes yeah. you were guest number three i believe yeah. so. <laughs> it's all thanks to you yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'll take it yeah. all right thanks doc until next time all right there you have it i love the good doctor matthew negra yeah he's good there's like people where i just once i've decided that they're like a good source of information i just like gravitate to them and want to like almost be like a little student in their class and just 
be that keen kid with my hand up all the time. Yeah. Ask all the questions. But I think I, I think that it's really important. And, you know, for us, we got to sit across the table from him here twice now. And we've had lots of interaction with him before. He's been a keynote speaker at Planted Expo um, and shared the stage there with some of the amazing other keynote speakers who, who've been brought in by Stephen and the team. Um, and so he is he is like a, a good source of, of knowledge and connection because we have this personal connection to him. But you don't have to have that to trust someone. And that's what I really love the gift of this podcast. It's like we can share the story and the wisdom that Dr. Matthew has and, and um, people can gravitate to him as someone to trust in a time where there's so much information and not all of it is good information. Yes. When you find people who are like doing the hard work of like researching and looking into it and will present you with an outcome, it's so nice to be able to be like, okay, I, I can like feel good about listening to this person's advice. So if there's any gift within the podcast, I hope that it's that for you, that you can also be like a little follower of Dr. Nagra and trust the wisdom and advice that he puts out there because we are. Sure are. Yeah, we're, we're bought in. A good doctor. We're fans, followers, all of the above. All right. Well, thank you for making it this far. Uh, quick shout out. I uh, want to give some love to our podcast manager, our, our boss behind the scenes, Katie, Katie Shaw. She's a legend. She's a legend. She makes uh, all the things come true. So shout out to Katie. Mm-hmm. Give her some love. She's always reminding us of like, you know, the important things that we forget to talk about that we need to talk about and yeah, helping us uh, stay on task. Yes. <laughs> like uh, we were supposed to remind all of you guys, all of you listeners that have made it so this far, uh, please like and subscribe yes. uh, wherever you do listen to your podcast, whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you find it. It makes a big difference. Uh, the more reviews, the more places that it shows up in the, the good old algorithm. Mm-hmm. So we do appreciate your shares. Uh, share it with your friends. Absolutely. Share it with your fam. Hit that like, subscribe, hit that review. It goes a long way in allowing us to share our message to more people. Yeah. Yes. And as always, we just really, really appreciate each and every one of you being along for this journey, being along to do, be, create, see, experience a little more good. All right. Thanks, everyone. Be good. Be good.